Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about, uh, you know, pretty much anything digital. Uh, and uh, and so we're going to talk about digital production, uh, your questions. So we've got questions about AI. We've got questions about 3D. We've got questions about Microsoft Teams, <laughs> all kinds of things here. So, so, uh, but your questions are important to us because this show doesn't run without them. So throw those questions in and vote on the questions so we know which ones to, to ask in what order. Uh, second hour, we're going to have um, Carl Asmussen is going to be talking um, about uh, basically the processes of recording, mixing, and mastering. So that should be a good second hour. Of course, this is our audio day. So spe specifically, you can ask questions about anything, but specifically, uh, if you've got questions uh, about audio, audio, go ahead and throw those in. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Jeffrey Reyes in Bronx, New York. Announced yesterday the OpenUSD Alliance, and he's got the link there, includes Apple, Adobe, Autodesk, and NVIDIA. Is this the beginning of the end for FBX and OBJ file formats? And what are the implications of this new alliance for the future? Yeah, so for, for those watching, uh, USDZ is the universal scene description, and this was created by Pixar to move large files. This takes uh, your 3D files, but not, not only just the 3D, but the surfaces, the lighting, the animation, all of those things can be wrapped up into a, a file format um, so they could move scenes around um, internally. Um, but this has become something Apple came in and looked at and said, why don't we zip this up and made it a USDZ. Um, but really, it looks like the push is towards USD right now. Um, and the fact that all of these companies have begun this alliance probably means that USDZ is the future of scene um, delivery. Now, this is a lot. USDZ is probably closer to FBX because it carries the animation data. Um, it is uh, both of them are significant improvements over OBJ which is really old. OBJ is the wavefront wave format from the 90s. So it's been banging around. FBX is also from the 90s. I think it came out in the late 90s. So these are both very old in the tooth. They were great when they came out. Their, their time has come <laughs> to, to move on. So, uh, so I think that you're going to see USDZ. I think USDZ is going to be the winner specifically because you have these, you know, all the major players have said, this is what we're going to use, you know, and uh, and so I think that this is going to push the industry forward. We've really had trouble getting USDZ to be equally available and and easy to use across all the different software platforms. Um, and I think that this uh, hunkering down by these this group will kind of push that through where it will be the lingua franca of 3D within the next probably five years. I go to Courtney. Yeah, I was looking on the website and I don't see any mention of USDZ. There's O right. OUSD. So it doesn't maybe they haven't agreed on a a there's several flavors of zip and ways to do it to compress. I don't files. know. I mean, I wonder maybe whether... it's because Apple's way isn't necessarily the same way other people want to do it or something. Maybe they haven't agreed on a compression format that maintains everything. Uh, yeah, no, I I'm wondering whether they're Apple's backing away from USDZ in, in order to get or or not pushing it as hard in order to get everybody playing on the same field. The reality is is that the difference between USDZ and USD are very small. So if you can get everyone to support USD, you solve most of the problem there. <laughs> the, the the last bit of zipping it up the way Apple wants to do it is is a very minor change. And so um so I, I don't think that there's uh if, if Apple can get and I think I, I think Apple's probably been a pretty big engine in this um, this thing because they really want everybody using the same format. I mean, this is really problematic for everyone to have constantly different formats. That a lot of when we talk about the the quote unquote metaverse, um, a lot of people 
uh, have talked about the idea of I want to be able to create an object or buy an object in one platform and then use it somewhere else. USDZ is the promise of that, that I can actually move something from my NVIDIA world to my Apple world to my, um, you know, Adobe world, whatever that is. Um, you know, and we have that with other formats, you know, <laughs> we can move things around um, EPS files or, or in, you know, where we can move things in and out or PDFs. Um, we just haven't had that for 3D. OBJ has been the best best one that we've had, the most portable, FBX being a more powerful version, but oftentimes a little quirky. Um, and so the OBJ, uh, you know, the, these have been what we kind of, that's our base way of just kind of moving things around. Uh, USD is much more robust than both of those formats. And so it's going to provide an enormous amount of capability. And we, we should be able to take complete scenes and move them from one app to the other. Um, in the future, <laughs> like they're just getting started. So it's probably three to five years. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah. And if you are, uh, uh, like to torture yourself and stay through the credits of any of the major motion pictures these days and look at the end credits, you'll notice that, uh, there's usually about five or 10 different, uh, effects, visual effects companies that did a lot of the compositing and generation of the computer generated effects on any movie these days. So they farm all that stuff out and all those different companies have to collaborate and exchange files. And it has to look the same when it comes out in the final mix. So I think that's what they, this is trying to do is to make it a lot easier for all those different companies to exchange files and yeah. to have a common method of storing each of the objects and textures and et cetera, scene descriptions. So. And I think a lot of them have already started the USU use USDZ for this. And that pipeline is, has been built over the last couple of years. This, I think, is more about how do we deliver uh, 3D scenes to the consumer? How do we deliver them to AR? How do we deliver them to VR? So I think this USDZ alliance, it, it will affect some of the the business end of things, but it's also, I think, really pushed on, we're going to deliver this to a whole bunch of people in the public. Let's not use eight different formats, you know, and, and so that, you know, so that, and, and this also has to do with web performance. Right now, the web, if you have a web browser, you have to support all these different formats to get something going. Um, and uh, like, for instance, Apple uses USDZ. So if you open up a Safari and you see something on your iPad, you can click on it, it'll pop up in front of you. But the other formats aren't supported that way. And so so if we can get everybody kind of, I think the, the idea is that we can get everybody playing in the same field. But I think the open USDZ alliance has more to do with the consumer than the production companies um, because they've already figured it, this, this part out. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Microsoft Teams is adding spatial audio to the native de desktop app. Outside of entertainment content, do you think spatial audio has a real advantage? And he's got a big link there. Good, Bill. So uh, you say outside of the entertainment space, but I think you might be thinking, and I'm presuming here, about movies and things like that. I think the real place that spatial audio has a huge foothold potentially is in gaming. I mean, there's just so much about gaming that spatial audio cues would be useful for, and it is such a massive industry that if nothing else were to change, uh, the continuous move of spatial into those MM. PORPGs, the massive multiplayer online role-playing games, would be a, a distinct benefit. You want to hear sounds 100% around you and overhead and everything else in that environment, and it's very, very useful. So, for what it's worth. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, he's talking about adding it to Teams, which is a video collaboration, uh, you know, engine uh, for Microsoft products and other products. But so maybe the reason for adding spatial audio is so that if, if you're in a meeting with 20 people on the other side, 
you may not know where to look if they're laid out like they are like around a table or something and somebody speaks it'll be directional so you'll know who's speaking you know you can look left or look right or uh, you can determine whose mouth is moving without having to scan the entire screen. This is a problem if, you, if you've ever noticed any of the congressional hearings. The witnesses are there, and they've got a whole row of 20 or so senators up there, and uh, each one has a microphone that's mic'd closely, and they'll start to ask a question, and you'll see the witness looking around to try and figure out who's speaking because it's non-directional in the PA system. They can't tell who's talking uh, by natural sound. So maybe that's what they're talking about by adding teams to give you, to give you some way to spatially locate whoever's speaking. So, you know, when whoever's speaking, you can associate them with their image on the screen somehow. Yeah. Go Jeff. Yeah. And, and I'm a fan as well. Um, the, the clubhouse, uh, started doing this with their own version of spatial audio and, and, and I like it, even if it's, even if it's subtle, um, just that you have that cue that it is someone else speaking. However, Alex raised a good point a while ago, which is that where it is deciding to place the person might not line up with how the grid is set up. So that's... Yeah, that, yeah, Blue Jeans has this, um, and Blue Jeans has done this for years, um, uh, at least through the last three or four years. And the biggest problem is exactly what Jeff had, had outlined, which is that the voices start coming from different directions than what you have on your screen. And then that becomes, when it works, you're like, oh, this is really nice. Because you see people on one side and you kind of hear them off to one side and you can, it, it, there is something about it. It's not even a, it helps you technically. It just is more comfortable. You know, you just feel like they're all around you a little bit. But when it swaps, it becomes much more problematic. Next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says less than 40% of Africa has internet access compared to 83% of the Americas, 89% of Europe, and so forth. What has to happen for Africa to catch up? Uh, Starlink. <laughs> like, like it's it's really hard to get that infrastructure to to uh, sort it, sort itself out in Africa, um, you know. So they've they've had all kinds of problems. Like for instance, one of the problems they had in some areas where they're running fiber actually across, um, you know, the farmers were angry that they were spending money on fiber instead of other infrastructure things that they needed. So they just cut the fiber <laughs> to get attention. Um, and so there's you know there's a lot of things that um, are difficult. It's expensive. Um, there's a lot of people that are spread out by a lot. There's only a handful of countries that are dense enough to make this really work. Um, I do a lot of work in Africa and, and Rwanda has done a pretty good job because it's the most dense country in Africa. And so it's able to, it's been able to put more fiber, but even then Rwanda is working on Starlink uh, solutions um, to get out to the rural, um, to the more rural population. So, so I think that you're going to see, um, you know, there are def there's definitely hubs where there's lots of bandwidth. Mauritius has an enormous amount of bandwidth, South Africa, of course, Kenya, um, Nigeria to some degree, and, and Ghana, those all have, those are all kind of, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, at least, those are places that have a fair amount. Tanzania has has a fair amount of, of bandwidth as well. Um, so those there's places, spots with lots of, of it, but getting it out to the rest of the, the rest of it. I mean, in my, many places, like in Kenya, I think they stopped maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they stopped running telephone lines. I mean, they, they just assume everyone, they just put up cellular uh, coverage, you know, for, for everyone. So they just, they, it just didn't make sense to keep on managing that. So I think that the, the, uh, I'm not a big fan, uh, to be honest, I mean, I, I'm a Starlink user. I'm not a big fan of 
Starlink and the broadband, whatever that's going out by the government, because I feel like it gets us in the United States, it gets us away from the real solution, which is to run fiber to everybody's home. Um, and which is, we should be doing that like we did with telephone and, and like we did with cable and like we did with a lot of other things, um, that it should be a, just a base requirement that everyone's going to have glass. Um, but in places like Africa, I think that that is, it is the way that we're going to have to do this is satellite. And um, I think you're going to see coverage jump from 40% to probably close to 80% in the next five years, largely because of Starlink. Um, go ahead, Bill. Investment, I think, would be the one word answer I have. An investment follows return. And as Alex has well articulated, the fact that the density is relatively low means that you run a line out to a particular place, unlike America, which is mostly city, uh, big cities. The population is mostly con constrained to big 50, cities. 50. Yeah, well, U.S. population is about 50-50 right now. Yeah. So, so anyway, so yeah, in Africa, I would imagine it's nowhere near that kind of split. But even, but even in the United States, my parents had one megasecond up and down until I left to Starlink there two weeks ago. <laughs> can yeah. only have 100 megs. You know, so so it, it is, it is even in the United States, it's a challenge when you get out of the, the core. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Africa is a very large continent, and it's full of politically diverse uh, countries, so uh, some of them warring with each other. So control over communications is one of the things that uh, uh, in a political environment, you know, tends to be taken control of. And in the major metropolitan neighborhoods like in Kenya and Nairobi, you know, I was in Nairobi 40 years ago and the telephone system, it was easier for me to call back to my home in the United States from Kenya than it was to call from Montana, you know, it was like yeah, a long I will distance say, system was I mean, so much better back then, you know. I will say that that uh, in most cases, in most countries in Africa, they are far more advanced than we are when it comes to communications at this point. So the internet is hard to deal with, but when it comes to cellular, the way that, that Africans use cell phones is a decade ahead of the United States. Like they, they buy things with it, they're transferring things, they're building businesses around it. It is because that's what everybody has. You don't know if anyone's going to have anything else, but they are going to have a cell phone. And and a lot of them, you know, the, more and more of them are are smartphones, but they've been feature phones for a long time. And they, but they, what they've packed in, um, the ingenuity in Africa is stunning when it comes to dealing with cellular because that's all they that's that's the primary computing device for many people. And so um, so I think that Africa, you know, will latch onto this um, again. I think that the big problem is when you're there. It's a un, it, there's some obviously there's some political idiosyncrasies in some parts of the of the of Africa, but even in the parts that are that are not um, uh, that that don't have instability, it's really just a very the population is very spread out. Africa, when you look at it on a regular map, it looks much it's smaller than it actually is. So when you actually when you take out the Mercator distortion, you realize that you know. You know, the United States would fit into a small piece of it. <laughs> you know, so it's it's a massive continent um, with, with that is relatively sparsely populated, and that may that is a uh, really hard for Wired, but that's why I think that Starlink is going to make a massive difference in Africa and in South South America, um, uh, and and it's going because it's just you just don't need the Wired in, infrastructure. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida, is up next. Which wired gooseneck conference microphones do you recommend, and how long should the gooseneck be for conference table use? Thanks. Good, Carl. 
So for conference table use, there's a couple. So Behringer's just released in the last 12 months, these two. So they're actually very different. One is dynamic. Um, essentially, it has a, a miniature version of their SM58 clone. Um, the other one's a condenser, fandom-powered. Um, the condenser one has a low-cut switch on it, whereas the dynamic one doesn't have that. It actually has a mute switch. So the mute switch is generally for if you're sitting at around a table and everyone has one of these, um, so you can mute yourself and on and off, whereas the condenser one, which would normally go on a lectern, you don't want a mute switch on because you don't want someone turning that off because you don't want them controlling it. But you do want the um, low-cut filter on it because if someone handles the mic, it'll cut out a lot of the bassy noise that that'll, that creaking will, will, will um, cause. Um, now, these two mics are very high quality. Um, a lot of tests, I've seen a lot of tests done on these because people want to test them out, and they're saying that these are up there with any other mic, but that's because these were made in the last 12 months, and Behringer's stuff that's come out in the last few years is uh, pretty top-notch that's coming out of China. Good. Courtney? Yeah, Shure makes a lot of conference systems that have small goosenecks on top of a wireless puck transmitter. And uh, the gooseneck should be about, you know, a foot, a foot to a foot and a half. And the fact that it's movable is important. So you want to move it so the microphone was within about a foot of the talker. If you, you have a, a microphone like Carl was just showing with just an XLR connector on it, and it has to be at a fixed base or built into the table or something, then it can become problematic because the person may not be able to move it close enough to their mouth to, to be conveniently heard without feedback or without picking up a lot of other people, table noise, et cetera. So if you can make it movable, you know, in other words, if it's on a wireless or even a wired base with a medium mute switch in it, to be able to move it, each person could move it or point it toward their mouth with a get it within about you know, eight to 10 inches of their mouth. That was, that would be the guideline to, to use for placing gooseneck microphone. Yeah. The, um, the, the ones that, that I've used the most are probably the MX418s from Sure. Um, these are a little bit more expensive than the Behringer's. They're about $270 each. Um, and they are 18 inch. Um, I, I really like 12 to 18 inch goosenecks. Uh, Microflex, the Sure also makes a Microflex that is, um, these are the wireless bases with a mute switch. Um, they also have a conference version of that. The conference version has a longer neck. Uh, the shorter ones are like eight, eight or 12 inches, which is a little short. Like it's just, it, you can do it. Um, the nice thing about the 12 to 18 inch um, throws are, are that you can really, people can put it right up next to them and it can be further away. And one of the reasons that's important is they may have papers that they want in front of them and the 18 inch will allow them to have things in front of them and it be a little further away and then reach out to them and have them be able to move it around. Most of these goosenecks are... Uh, you know, have a um, articulation at the end, so you can kind of put them over to the side and, and move them there and, and get that placement right. But if you're looking for wired ones, um, the ones that I've used, I think I had at one point twenty of the MX four eighteens, and they were. And and anytime we did conferences, uh, we did those. One thing to think about is that still, is, uh, when you go back to your mixer, uh, you still want something. Even though these are cardioid, um, you still want to think about whether you uh, you want to use an auto mix, which is just transformational when you come when it comes to conferences go ahead courtney another nice feature a lot of these uh, uh gooseneck mics have is a tally light right around the end of the microphone that lights up when you're unmuted and that's handy to have to a let you know that your microphone is hot and b let everyone in the room know who's talking uh, by just scanning the room to see whose microphones lit up so the little tally light i think is kind of important even though it doesn't really contribute to the sound at all the next question Funchak Dorji in uh, Dharamshala, India, says, Greetings, panels. Asking for a friend. He's the host in the video. This, and he has a link to the video there, was recorded in a studio. How can he make the audio better? 
Sennheiser G4 is connected to each cam and is recorded on a hyperdeck through an ATEM. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, we were looking at this uh, prior to the show, and it looks like the um, they all have lavaliers, and it looks like they're maybe using a directional lavalier, and you can see that on some people, it's clipped and facing at, I'm sorry, I'm blocking my microphone so you can see how bad it sounds, uh, is it's pointed at a right angle, and it's a three-person panel. So the, the host, which may be in the middle, is talking to one side and the other side. And so whenever he's talking to the side that's opposite the direction he's pointing, it's going to be lower in level and sound off microphone. So try and make sure if you're using a cardioid mic that it's pointed straight up at the mouth um, and or use omnidirectional microphones where you'll have less of that problem. And if you're positioning, if you can't position it directly in the center, position it on the side. If it's a two-person interview, position it on the side in which you're going to be talking to the other person. In other words, cheat to the side of that the person they're talking to is on. So that when they're talking to the person, uh, it's on mic. And when they're talking straight ahead, it's still, uh, still okay. But if they're talking the opposite direction, it's going to be off mic. Good, Bill. First and foremost, yeah, we did have a talk about it. It was interesting. I, overall, they did a good job. I mean, I could hear everybody articulated and you could get the content out of the video. So in that respect, it was a success. I will say that it appeared as if uh, somebody who was running the board, or had, board had tried to kind of help each person and maximize what they were doing. And we noted that, for example, the young woman was very softly spoken and it seemed like they had not only pushed her volume to the point where signal to noise ratio was a little iffy, but uh, had EQ'd her to be present, and that meant that some um, just generic background sounds were more present when they cut to her than when they cut to the other people on the panel. And so that's a circumstance where it's always a balance. You're, you're trying to say, what is the best for the audience? And in most cases, having the three microphones pick up and EQ exactly the same will lead to the best thing so that one person doesn't sound significantly different than the other. And that can follow having one gain really pumped up significantly higher than the other two microphones. So just something to yeah. think about. Yeah, I would, I would definitely check the gain on the transmitters and receivers, not necessarily in the mixer. Um, I think you have a gain staging problem. When you hear that much self-noise in a wireless receiver, it generally means that the wireless receiver's gain was set too low, and then the mixer is making making up for it, and you're bringing up all of that all that um, noise that's inside the system. And so what you probably, what she needed was more gain, and either, I can't remember with that one where you put the, the but in the transmitter-receiver re, uh, relationship, that's where you're trying to change your gain is, and I believe it's the transmitter there that you need to increase um, so that it's sending out more signal. Now, obviously, if you do too much of that, you're going to end up with a clipping and it's clipping inside the transmitter, which is not a good thing. So you don't you want to be gentle with it and really work on that. But working on that gain staging solution is going to be something that's going to be really important because what she had on hers specifically than other than the, uh, the other two was a lot of self-noise, which generally when someone's using a wireless, I will immediately go to the transmitter-receiver relationship as opposed to the, the mixer will then pull back a little bit. Um, but those, I think that's probably where you had the had the issue there. Um, so I would really dig into those. Those, those transmitters and receivers and mics uh, should be um, fine. One thing that I finally given into, it looks funny, so I've, I've, I've pushed it off, but when, when it comes to mic placement, the problem with putting mics in the center 
is that you get plosives coming down. The BBC does this thing where they turn the mics over top, upside down. And I, I watched it for a long time going, I just think you'd pick up all this paper noise, but with an Omni mic, it shouldn't make any difference. And I did some testing and rea the reality is it really doesn't make any difference. <laughs> it picks up just as much paper as it would otherwise, except that the 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 condenser, the, um, the, the mic uh, doesn't pick up the plosives. And so I think that's why the BBC does that when they do a center. So it, 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 all BBC shows show that, and it's it feels very odd when you look at it, but um, it actually sounds the same. I couldn't find I couldn't find any significant difference, and you don't have the plosives. Um, next question, Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. Are there advantages of using a native app like VLC for watching video streams rather than a browser, for example, spatial audio? Good, Bill. I've never used spatial audio with it, so there may be, but for me, I just needed to shout out to the open source community. VLC is one of the great successes of open source software creation. That team, and it's global and it's voluntary, has been one of the most successful open source software teams that I could ever imagine. They're really spot on with the development of the software. It is almost universal in that 95% of the video files I've thrown at VLC have opened and played with all of their functions intact. And for something that's not a for-profit enterprise to sustain for, gosh, I think they've been around for 50, 40, 30 years, something like that. Um, it's just been magnificent. I, I specifically don't use it with spatial audio, so I can't help you there. But I will say that... I try to use native apps whenever possible, but if anything goes wrong in that, my first head turn is toward VLC. It's amazing. Good. Courtney? Yeah, as far as a non-associated with any particular brand or product, VLC would be probably one of the best players out there for a freestanding player. But with most of the major players like YouTube, HBO, Max, or, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, any of the, the mainstream streamers are going to have their own uh, carefully designed apps that will support the most number of audio formats, probably. Uh, and they won't be using the browser to play them back. Uh, they're standalone apps that will run on your streaming platform like a Roku or an Apple TV or um, uh, Fire TV. Uh, so those type of custom written apps to run on there probably support more audio formats and give you a little more control for the major players. That's for the major players of uh, distribution of theatrical and television stuff. Hulu, yeah, the uh, yeah the um for spatial specifically, you you often need something. It, it depends on what platform you're on as well. So uh, it's much more difficult to do spatial audio with Windows and Android uh, Mac. On the Apple ecosystem, everything supports the found just the basic foundation player uh, across Apple. So this is where you probably wouldn't want to use VLC, but you could use the browser. Um, pretty much, if you're opening up Safari um, and you're on an Apple uh, hard hardware in the last five years, uh, Atmos, for instance, will just work. Like it's just going to, you know, it's just going to open up if someone's using the, if they just ask for the Apple Foundation player. Um, so that's on the back end. Like that means that you're just, you're not trying to create your own player. You're not trying to do anything special. Um, and so you're going to get more support there. Once you get into the Windows and, and Android, you really do, if you're, just when it comes to spatial audio, you really do need a custom application. And then you also, especially in the case of Atmos, um, you need to get go through the licensing, especially on Windows. Windows just doesn't want to pay the dollar per person to put it, to, to include the license, and so they ask you to do that. And so, and but that means that there's a a rigmarole that is required to do the install, which is, makes it difficult. I go ahead, Jeff. 
And if it's Apple, um, what I like to do, uh, particularly in Safari, is depending on the website and what it supports, um, I like to right-click. And if it will allow me to open, whether depending if they have a frame, whatever it is, but that video audio object in a new tab, now you are purely playing that thing in a new tab and then you get all the controls and everything else you get directly from apple including i mean you can do it with almost anything but you get the picture in picture you can kick it into that mode you can do everything and and it's even more useful on mobile because if you open again that thing purely now you get if it's pre-recorded you get the backup uh and forward controls you get everything by just playing that that object. And then, you know, one of the exceptions there of what you want to play is probably YouTube as, as well. So you don't want to do YouTube in a, in a, in a, in a somebody else's browser. You want to let YouTube, the app on your iPhone or iOS is obviously going to be way better. Um, YouTube has a lot of features they can put into that. And then their, their web service is very, very powerful as well. Um, but the, again, the app support, especially on the Apple TV and, and the, and the iOS devices is very well developed and you, you'd want to watch it inside the YouTube environment. Uh, next question. Goran Krosage in Slovenia says, any recommendation for MADI to Dante converters? I want to get audio from an ATEM 4ME Constellation HD over Dante into an X32. Go ahead, Carl. So you do not want to use Dante for this because the ATEM doesn't have Dante. The X32 has MADI, so you just spend $300 on the MADI card and you go MADI directly from the ATEM straight into the X32. Um, this is one of the cheapest cards. It's one of the most powerful cards they have, actually, because you can route this through a Blackmagic um, switcher. So, well, a router, sorry. So, a Blackmagic router, 3G router, you can actually switch it. So, you can, you can, well, you can route it. I shouldn't say switch. You can route it, but it acts like a switcher. Um, so, that's the beauty of Matty. It runs alongside your video stuff. So, you can buy a Dante converter if you do want to. That's kind of set you back at least $1,500 to around three thousand dollars it's very expensive because you're going between two completely different formats but i would just put this card into any x32 rack mount the full one um and it will work the x32 only has one card right i mean it's only i think it only has one card slot so that's so the wing so yeah the wing has one card plus mm -hmm. one network so mm -hmm. the wing can have 128 channels of dante because right. it has two brooklyn two cards right the x32 has one expansion card slot so you would have to switch out if you want to switch between Dante and Maddie, you'd have to switch expansion cards. But yeah. if they're running it, if that's how they want to run it, I'll just put the, it's much cheaper to buy $300 for the card yeah, than $2,000 for a converter. The challenge for us is a lot of times we're, we're, we're getting Dante from a whole bunch of different solutions. Um, and so uh, we, uh, we would want the X30, the problem is we want the X32 to be on Dante. <laughs> so so our, our issue is- They're saying is they're only getting stuff it. from the ATEM. If they're know, only getting stuff from the ATEM, then yeah. Uh, if that's the only thing he's doing, but it would be very unusual to only want things from the ATEM. I mean, when you're building those things out. So um, to, to convert it, what we use in our office is the RME Digiface, which is, as Carl said, about $1,800. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a, it's an expensive piece of hardware. Um, but that's the way we convert um, between Dante and Matty, and it works exceptionally well. Um, if, you, if you know that you're only going to do Matty, I think I agree with Carl that you could put a card in there um, to connect those. And so, um, but if you're thinking that you're part of a Dante ecosystem and you just need to get it Matty, and we use it not only to get 
um, potentially to the Constellation, but also the FS, uh, our FSHDRs are all MADI as well. So there's other reasons for us to use it. So, it, um, but we also have a huge Dante network that we need everything on. So it just depends on whether you, you are using Dante or you're only using that MADI pipe. The, the problem, again, with MADI is that it's, the, the advantage of MADI is it's super simple. And it just works, and and it's it's a you know it does you don't have to know anything about networking. The downside of it is, is it's super simple. It's not very expandable. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the best use case for a Flow Eight? Who needs one, and how do you mix monitors and use effects on it? Good, Carl. So I did a second hour on the Flow 8. We'll probably do another one in the future as well. Um, the Flow 8 is very handy because it's a bit of everything. It doesn't have recording. Um, it doesn't have noise cancellation. It's really a mixer. So it's meant to be like more of a live PA mixer where you don't necessarily need, need um, noise suppression. Um, but it does have, it is an audio interface. So 10 channels into the computer and it will do four channels from the computer back in to the mixer. Um, you can go into it via Bluetooth as well. So if you have a Bluetooth source, that can go in. Um, it's got four, you can do four mix minuses. Um, and they can, those four mix minuses can be put back into a computer or they can actually be put out into analog sphere. Um, and it has a lot of routing opportunities as well. So you can do a mix minus for yourself. So f for instance, what I'm hearing, uh, when I, when I hook up, I'm only hearing the panel, but the panel isn't being fed back into the cell. So it has that kind of mix minus or routing. So what I'm hearing from Zoom only comes to me and it doesn't get mixed with the rest. So it is quite flexible. Take a look at my second hour if you want to look, um, and let Josh know if you want to see a, a future second hour and any new features that have come out. And a quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the hour. So um, if you uh, have questions, of course, this is our audio day. You're seeing we've got a lot of audio questions coming in. Um, but if you've got uh, audio questions or general questions, you can ask them now. If you've got questions about um, recording, mixing, mastering, uh, then throw those in for the second hour. Uh, so um, the, the, that's the that's coming up here in just a, about a half an hour. Um, but uh, it, the throw those questions in and re always remember to vote on the questions so that we know what you'd like, what order you'd like us to answer them in. All right, let's go ahead and jump to the next question. Mitch Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. Has anyone had a chance to review the new DJI Osmo Action 4 camera? And he's got a link to it. Go ahead, Courtney. I haven't actually had one. I looked at the specs on it. It looks pretty interesting for uh, a $400 camera. It's, um, let's see, it has uh, 4K at up to 120 frames per second and 1080p at up to 240 frames per second. So it can do uh, slow-mo. It has a touch screen on the front and the back, which is strange. It also has voice activation, so you can uh, tell it to roll, tell it to stop. Uh, and it's uh, waterproof up to 59 feet, uh, which is pretty amazing for a camera without a, uh, without a separate housing underneath. I'm not sure how good the touchscreen is going to work underwater, but uh, you know, it might work for you. It also has some interesting, uh, it has three different modes of uh, electronic stabilization. And I, I didn't read the total spec, so I don't know if that's stable. That stabilization is probably only available if you're shooting uh, 1080p, but maybe uh, 2K. Uh, where it will either keep the horizon steady or uh, adaptively, slowly adaptive, follow it, and just uh, make make your uh, action action footage smooth. And uh, you know, Mitch, if you're like me, the most action I see is getting out of the chair and back into the chair here for office hours every morning. So it probably wouldn't be good for me to touch my hat or something. I think that uh, I, I think that D DJI has kind of passed 
you know, uh, you know, go pro. Like, I just think that it's, they've gotten, they've, they've really, uh, I think they, they have more money and they've been spending it and they've been really doing the development of it. And I think that this is the, probably the best action camera out there right now. Um, it's, it, I haven't got a chance to use this one specifically. I did get a chance for about a week to use the, one of the uh, previous versions and it felt significantly better than, than the, I had stopped buying the, I have, so, I mean, to put it in perspective, I've got probably 10 to 15 of the GoPros of different from two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I think the, I think the, I bought an eight was my last one that I was like, I just got to stop doing this. Like it was the software and the interface and the experience was not getting any better. I was having overheating issues. I was having, you know, I think GoPro just, just kind of lost the way and uh, it's, they really owned it. But I think DJI is taken this space and I think that I'm looking forward to, I probably will end up getting one of these just because uh, it, it looks like a, the perfect camera for what we're doing right now. Um, next it also question. has stereo microphones on it. So, I know. So that's very nice. Next question. Uh, Douglas Campbell, Elon Musk wants to turn Twitter into a super app like WeChat, but the U.S. market is much different. Thoughts? And he's got a link there. Good, Carl. I won't speak to the agenda of Business Insider, um, but WeChat is very big and it exists in a market that's very big. Um, there is a much bigger market outside of America than inside of America. And people outside of America are spending more money than people inside of America. And there's nothing stopping Elon from moving Twitter offshore so he doesn't have to pay any repatriation of cash when it comes back. So don't think Twitter will stay in America for much longer if he wants it to become like WeChat. He'll just move it to the subcontinent. Go ahead, Bill. Well, my thought is always that if capital solves the problems you're facing, then somebody with a ton of capital, and Elon is certainly in that class, can often solve problems and bring successful things to market. The other side of that, though, is that what I call the Michael Jordan factor. You know, you can be a planetary class athlete in basketball and decide you want to play baseball and you're okay, but you're not planetary class anymore. And so I'm not sure whether this move for him is going to be one of those things where his skill set can break through and turn something into huge, or whether it's going to be something like what happened with Twitter, where his coming in was not transferable, and there's been as much disorganization as organization in making that happen. I mean, even up to the point of the little things that you'd think that uh, he would have a team that would take care of, like the huge X that he put in San Francisco and they made him take it down in like a week. I mean, those are just kind of basic business 101 errors. And I'm not sure which way this is going to go. That's my two cents. Good, Nigel. Yeah, I'm, I'm with slightly with uh, Carl on, you got to question slightly the source here. And, and much of the stuff written about Twitter at the moment, I think you have to look through the filter of who's saying it and why are they saying it and what is their agenda. And there's such rubbish being written. I mean, just on the X thing on the roof, I don't know how much that cost them, but they got a lot more in publicity from whatever that. And the fact they had to come down in three days struck me as a bit of a marketing masterstroke. On the real, the real comparison between the WeChat, you know, WeChat has about a billion users. Twitter has probably half that amount. But feature by feature, they're really not far off from each other except for one major area, which is a payment system. And if Musk, who has a little bit of an experience in payment systems, as we know, can add a payment engine to this, then he actually has quite an interesting competitor to WeChat. WeChat really doesn't exist outside of China, particularly, or at least the Asian area. And so I think there's a huge opportunity. 
for him to do this. And I think the market is right for somebody finding a transaction engine that goes beyond things like Facebook, which uh, people haven't uh, really trusted anymore. Whether, you know, PayPal can do that, whether he can do something with PayPal, whether he can combine those. I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities uh, here for him. And uh, last thing on predictions, uh, someone told me once that you should work out what the cost of being wrong is to someone when they make a prediction. And if it's nothing, that's how much it should be worth. And I suspect most of what you're listening to about Twitter, including mine, is probably worth nothing. Yeah, I've I've learned not to second guess Elon Musk too much. Like, he does crazy things, but you're like, well, they, they, a lot of them turn out. <laughs> So, so, so I, I, you know, so I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I think that, I think that, uh, Nigel's correct that, that I think that it's, there, there's nothing else like it. I don't know whether he'll be able to pull it off. Um, as a, as a X user or Twitter user, it's a little bit of a chaos, um, you know, there, I mean, it's a little bit of, um, things constantly changing, but at least, you know, Twitter has barely changed at all for a decade, you know, and that's part of, I think, why it survived, but it's also why it was never going to get any bigger. Like it was never going to, you know, Twitter was where it was. It was going to make, you know, and so shaking it up was going to be better than that. I think that, um, I don't know if he's going to get his investment back, but it is, it's at least uh, adventurous. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I thought I'd be upset with X and then my app changed and then it took me a while to keep on remembering where it was. Like that was my biggest problem on my phone. I was like, I don't understand where this is. And then I just went back to what I was doing. So I don't, I don't know if it's, I think that's, that's the case for a lot of Twitter users. I think a lot of the folks that are in the press are love to talk about this and there's some high profile people complaining about it. But in the end, I think most Twitter, Twitter slash X users just kind of go, well, Okay, <laughs> like and they and they and they kind of just keep moving along. Um, there, that's where their following is. That's where their culture is. That's where they're. You know, there's not a lot of. Um, they kind of just shrug it off um, because there's not somewhere else to go. Like, where else are they going to go? You know, like you know, so. So that's the that's the issue. Uh, next question. Hakan Force, back from Stockholm, Sweden, and been thinking of adding myself into an Unreal environment live instead of doing a traditional PowerPoint presentation on stage. Thoughts? Good, Courtney. I'm not sure how this would work. Would you be backstage on a green screen set and have yourself uh, put into that PowerPoint? I mean, that your presentation in Unreal Image where you would, you know, kind of walk up and point to the items one by one as you're talking about them? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. I think you would lose your rapport with the audience. And if you're doing a live presentation from stage with like a PowerPoint on a big projection screen, uh, the audience knows you're there in person and so may pay more attention to you. Uh, if they in the audience are bored, they'll start looking at their phones and doing their email. Uh, and well, some people will start doing that anyway. But if you're there live and they know that you can see them, uh, as well as them being able to see you, they're a little less likely to be inattentive. So I don't think it would be a good thing if you want to get your point across. It may be a nice gimmick for one piece, but then people would be just like watching a playback of a video rather than a live presentation. And so they may uh, lose interest more quickly. Good, Bill. Yeah, I did. to me, it's how much experience do you have with Unreal? If you've been doing it for years and you feel completely comfortable with the in interface and have been successful at it, then adding yourself in as a live element may not be too much of an overhead add to cause the presentation to get less than stable. If you haven't, uh, my experience with Unreal has been that it's pretty deep and pretty complex and pretty hard to learn at the beginning stages. And I would never, ever try to do that if I didn't have that background in it. Go, Jeff. 
You know, I, I agree 100% with um, what Courtney said for now, but of course, looking to where the puck is going, when everyone is watching that presentation through their Vision Pro, and they are then only seeing you on camera, or do they see you in that immersive environment, truly interacting with the objects of what you're presenting and showing? Uh, that's where the real power comes in, and, and everyone going to be in those environments anyhow so why not be a better version in that environment looking forward yeah i think that the um i, I i've done a lot of interactive um in, in presentations the the real challenge for you is that it takes up a lot of time to um get it right and to get it working now if you're doing the same presentation or you're doing similar things or you build a pipeline for it uh, it is pretty impressive. Like I've definitely done a lot of things where people get, you know, are kind of surprised at what I can do on my on my system. So for me, I spend less energy trying to figure out how to build a virtual environment because as stated before, it's a lot of work. And the problem is if you don't get it just right, it's not going to, it's going to be weird. <laughs> you know, like, and so like for one of the things that we spent a lot of time on doing virtual backgrounds is we bring in really good 3D artists, we bake in the lighting, we have it all look really good and we have it all, I mean, it looks like, like we we did um, a bunch of virtual um, events. Uh, these weren't Unreal, but these were virtual 3D backgrounds for a client. And instead of doing something crazy, what we did is we went to their offices. The reason that they, just don't, they, don't want to, they don't want us to shoot in their office, but they wanted to feel like their office and their office has lots of wood and brick and everything else. We, we went in and took a whole bunch of photos. And then I had, McKe uh, I mean, Alan, who you you'll you normally see on Tuesdays, Alan built these incredible, like, and we took, we had one where they said that there was a, there was an architect that they liked. And so we gave Alan a, uh, 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 we gave Alan um, the pictures and the architect and he built out the perfect room. It looked as if it was built by that architect and uh, by that architect. And so, um, and Alan is incredible at photorealism. So it looked photoreal. And then we were shooting them in front of green screen. <laughs> like, so we were, you know, we were able to shoot them in front of green screen. And that meant that we could just churn them out anywhere in the world and they'd always look like they were in that scene. And so that was, um, that was really useful. So you can do it and it's really interesting and you can then play with that, have things pop out and roll out and things animate around the person if you're keying them. Those all look really cool. The question you always have to ask yourself when you're doing the presentation, anytime we're building a presentation or we're a user or a, an event producer or, or anything else in that realm, are we doing this for the audience or are we doing this for ourselves? You know, we're bored. We want it to be cool. Um, and sometimes it's worth it and sometimes it's not. I think that Apple has a pretty good, Apple does a pretty good balance of we're going to entertain you. We're going to be efficient when you look at their keynotes. Um, but we're not going so far over the top or working so hard. We're trying to keep it really subtle. Um, and uh, and so I think that that's there. I think that the um, the the other thing you want to think about if you're doing PowerPoint in general or Keynote is interaction. Can I jump in and out of that slide deck? That is more important than Unreal. So for instance, I have a stack of five Mac minis next to me right here. And the reason is, is because when I do presentations, I have one Mac mini that is just my application Mac mini. So if I want to show you something, I have that. I have one that's just running Keynote. I have one that's just running um, my Telestrator. I have one that's running some heads up displays that I need and one that's running Zoom. 
And so all of those things are all tied together with my switcher. What that means is I can jump to whatever I want as I want um, in real time as I'm doing a presentation. And that I will argue is probably far more interactive for the audience of me being able to respond with the audience, answer questions as it was asked before. I can I don't need I can jump off the rails of the of the presentation, wander off here for a little while and then come right back to where I was, you know, and there's tools that do that. But it's by by stacking up that hardware. And I'll, I'll tell you. It still takes some work, but it's a lot easier than Unreal. <laughs> and, and you hit on, however, the the very problem that are the two problems, which is keeping it tight. And of course, once Apple started pre-recording and pre-producing their keynotes is when they got even tighter and, and you know, really with the flow they want. But then, of course, that makes interactivity tougher. So so you have to figure out that balance. And, and the era of the keynote, if you're talking about this for a keynote, the era of the keynote is over. Like in the next five years, it'll wind out. So we won't, we will see no, no major company will be doing keynotes um, in five years. And the reason is because of Apple. Apple, NVIDIA, all of these folks are now starting to do pre-recorded ones. And their the response is so much higher that there's no reason for them to go back. And so, so there's not going to be, I mean, you, Apple could never go back because the new keynotes are so much better than the old ones. And so the thing is, is that they're, you know, and so because, and they're, they drove, the reason we do keynotes now is because of Apple, because of Steve Jobs. But the problem is, is that no one else is like Steve Jobs, except for maybe Mark Benioff at Salesforce. Um, but that's, those are the only, most other, you know, um, most, most other uh, presentations are done, you know, with executives are typically look like, you know, fourth grade piano recitals. <laughs> like, you know, like it's just really, mm, it's so cute. Plus they're but, so, and, so, and so you're the, describing, um, so, you're describing your system and your workflow, but, and you do 20 of these a day, every day. You know, most people. No, that's the problem. Are neither equipped or. And it still or takes me half an hour it. by myself to set up for a presentation, like to do it, to get it all ready. Okay, I'm going to go to here. I'm going to go to here. I'm going to go to here. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. And, and so for me to get, and then I get, I, I get more comfortable with it. Now I have also been using this system for a decade. So, so it's not like it slowly gets bigger and better, but it's, it's been something like this. And so I think that that's the thing you have to, I would really focus on how do I interact with my audience? How do I have like the thing that makes the biggest difference with interacting with your audience is this right there. Because that telestrator being able to draw diagrams while you're talking means you're not connect, you're not limited to your slides. Next question. Next one comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Hopin announced Hopin Events, Hopin Session, and Boomset businesses and products, and the respective teams transitioning over to Ring Central for their communications. Can anyone catch up to Zoom at this point, or will more of these, quote, mergers be on the way? Someone could catch up to Zoom. It's not going to be Ring Central. <laughs> like it's not, you know, like I think that they, I mean, Ring Central is not going to make this this massive change. And the reason, again, and and I I know that we've talked about this in the past because we've been partnered with Liminal. But as long as the Liminal team is at Zoom, no one's going to no one. It's going to be a very hard lift because you have a very focused team that actually understands what's necessary and is very effective. Um, and so I think that you're going to um, continue to see Zoom, you know, innovating in those areas. Um, you know, I think that the biggest danger for Zoom is being distracted by trying to do what everybody else is doing rather than continuing to make look at what they what makes them different and continue to go down that path. And the broadcast tools are a big piece of what makes them different. Um, but I think that overall, I think Microsoft is the only one I could really see catching up with, you know, with Teams. 
Um, they have most of the things that Zoom is trying to add, and they have the money that if they if if Microsoft suddenly got focused, they could probably you know move things along. But I just don't know. I don't I don't have a lot of uh, confidence that Microsoft could focus a team. Um, to actually get the, the problem is they're trying to solve so many problems with, you know, the, what, what Microsoft would have to do is really build, you know, a new Skype, which they ruined already, but they would have to build out something like a, like a special forces team that's going to build this up from the scratch again, you know, like we're going to build a whole new video platform that's just for presentations. That's not trying to incorporate into teams that is simply there to do present to do events. And if, if Microsoft went down that path, they, that, you know, they could potentially with, you know, a lot of investment, they could potentially catch up to zoom. Um, so I think that, but I don't think it's going to be ring central. One notable thing about ring central that you'll notice is they did. I don't think that they took Vidyard with them. So I think that this Ring Central uh, purchase, I think, left uh, or Streamyard. I'm sorry, left Streamyard behind. Um, so I don't know exactly where that goes. They bought assets, but not all of the assets. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, in most long-term branding, the number one brand takes all the money in the market. The number two makes some money. The number three is lucky to be break-even. And and you can really go down everything. We're seeing it in semiconductors. We're almost seeing it in PCs now. Across every technology, you end up with two or three brands. So those are going to be a lot of consolidation. There's going to be a lot of mergers. There's going to be a lot of uh, brands just being taken out of the market. I think, as I would agree, I think if Microsoft could rethink about their team's business outside of their office business, they stand a chance, but they're never going to do that in my I think it's always going to be weighed down by the office product rather than let free. The one player that's got to decide where it wants to be in this market and has done a fairly poor job despite some of the best technologies, Apple. And at some point, Apple with the devices stands the chance of reinventing this market, but doesn't seem like it wants to. When I see the innovation that Apple brings to Face FaceTime, I'm, I have, I don't have a lot of confidence that they can figure this out by themselves. I do, FaceTime has not been, I think, a huge success. Um, it is a success from a mobile to mobile environment, but as soon as you get out of uh, cell phone to cell phone environments or just easy point to points, uh, Apple has not shown themselves. I will say the company that I least expected to be successful, but I've seen the most improvement is actually Web WebEx. Um, Web, I've been brought into WebEx meetings over the last couple of years, and they, they went from being a joke, and I mean a complete joke, to something that actually is working better. Um, and and I, I, don't, I, I still would say that they're third or fourth in the rung, but if you're looking at velocity, WebEx has made more, more improvement over the last two or three years um, than any other company. Now, next question. Next one comes from Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. Eric says, I'm searching for a low-cost mixer to replace my Blackmagic Ada Mini Pro that supports multiple USB-C outputs. I want to feed two laptops as virtual cameras with my program feed while keeping the HDMI output for monitoring. Go ahead, Carl. So first thing, let's talk about USB. It's a host-client relationship, so you can't have two USBs coming out of one device going to two different hosts. Um, so there is a way to do this if you have a Hyperdeck. So if you have a Hyperdeck, I think it's a plus upwards. Um, the Hyperdeck have USB webcam out. So if you feed it a signal, you can feed it the HDMI signal, 
and that HDMI signal can then be taken from the USB out of the HyperDeck and becomes a webcam out. That's a separate webcam because it's a separate device. You can go to a second computer. So your ATEM would have one USB to one computer and your HyperDeck would have a USB to all. You could use a Video Assist. does the same thing. So Video Assist will also have webcam out. Um, Video Assist or HyperDeck. Um, they both essentially are both HyperDecks. Um, and then you can have HDMI out of the HyperDeck or HDMI out of the Video Assist again and that can become... You know, that, that could be your HDMI out. Um, it is a bit tricky because you only have the one HDMI out on the Pro, not the, unlike the Extreme, which one can be programmed, one can be multi-view. Um, but you will need two devices with USBs, but HyperDeck or Video Assist both have webcam out. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to suggest a similar, uh, similar solution would, would be just to go uh, the HDMI out of the... Uh, of the A10 Mini into a, like a one by four splitter with give you four HDMI outs and then uh, take the USB out of your HDMI uh, of your A10 Mini and go to one laptop and then take a feed from the other one and go into a USB to, uh, uh, I mean, a, a HDMI to USB converter capture card of some sort. And that would go into your second laptop. The problem you would lose is as uh um, Carl said, is you can't independently switch, uh, you know, your program output to one monitor and uh, that you're monitoring and the, uh, you know, multi-view to the other monitors. You'd have to be, everything that's going out that program HDMI out is going to be what split and what's going to be on your monitor and what's going to be on both PCs. You can't put one thing on your monitor and add something else on the other two PCs. Next question. Next one comes from Hokan Force in Stockholm, Sweden. Would like to do some basic remote control of a Sony PXWZ90 over Ethernet. Do you know of any solutions? I go ahead, Carl. So it can't be done with this camera. So it does have remote, but it does remote via the smartphone app. So that's the only way you can do the remote for this particular camera. Now, you can actually have... Um, Ethernet with this camera, but that's for RTMP streaming. So this is a setup. So essentially, you got to buy the adapters that are listed here. So you buy the multi adapter, and the multi adapter will then go into Sony's own USB to Ethernet adapter, and then off you go to router, and off you go to the internet. So, but that's for RTMP streaming from the camera, which the camera can do via Wi-Fi or via that hardware solution. But there is no remote control via that solution. It's only RTMP streaming. The remote control is via smartphone app only. Next question. Next one comes to us from Josh Kaufman at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The 8KG HM1000 ceiling mount is designed to mount the AKG CK Series 80 microphone capsules from high ceilings. The base has a tally ring around it that is phantom powered. What would the typical interface be that that includes switches for control? You know, I I haven't used a lot of... um, I haven't used a lot of the ceiling mounts. So I think that the challenge really is, is figuring out how, you know, how many are you going to use and what are you using there for those ceilings, especially in high ceilings. I don't know if the ceiling mounts really work. I mean, I see, we, we see a lot of people try this, but I think what you really want to look at what the quality of the actual, I mean, people want to get it out of the way. They just want people to walk in and, and I understand that. Um, but I, um, but I'm, I, I'm, I've never heard ceiling mounts work in a way that I thought, well, that I should do that. Except for uh, Pac-12 has a one that has like 100 mics in it for press that worked really well. Um, but it was a really complex system. But that's the only time I've ever heard ceiling mics work. Go ahead, Bill. 
I wonder if those tally rings simply come on in the presence of phantom power and whether you put a phantom power delivery device in line with the microphone right at its XLR connection point or somewhere along that, uh, the tally light might come on when it gets phantom and come off when it loses phantom. So it'd just be an indication that the mic is hot. Possible. Uh, And a quick reminder that, uh, of course, we've got a couple more days here in the week. Uh, I'm pretty excited about tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have uh, Dan Pizarski from LiveView. He's going to talk about the LiveView studio in the cloud. So we're, we're really excited to see uh, what that actually looks like. Of course, we're using a LiveView next week in uh, at, at Seagraph. And I've been testing it uh, almost every day right now, trying to make sure that all the signals are working. And we've, we're pretty excited about that. So um, uh, anyway, uh, Dan's going to be on. Uh, and he's going to talk a little bit about that and answer your questions. I think it's going to be a really good uh, second hour tomorrow. Back to school on Friday. So as, as people are getting ready for school or getting ready for the, the fall, it seems like everybody just kind of slows down during the summer. And then in the, you get to Labor Day in the United States and everyone's like, okay, now it's time to go back to, we, we were so trained. You give us 12 years of training and we'll just um, kind of pop that in. Uh, two hours of Q&A on Saturday. You know, accessibility uh, has, has run in the first segment and now they're going to be doing some figuring out and some calculations of that process. And so so, um, so that's going to be um, that we're going to have two hours of Q&A. Um, so definitely jump in. That's usually a lot of fun. So the old Saturdays are, are back for a couple weeks. Um, and then, of course, Sunday is introspection. Sunday is a good day if you have uh, questions about office hours, about the industry, more philosophical. Um, those are great, great questions to bring up on Sunday. So do that. And reminder that, of course, Seagraph coverage is next week. So stay tuned for that. We'll have a lot of um, things around uh, that process. So uh, stay tuned for that. Now we're going to jump into the second hour. All right, as we uh, enter our second hour, uh, we're going we're gonna to start talking about um, recording, mixing, and mastering. And uh, to get us started, uh, Carl has, um, uh, has, has put together a little presentation. So I'm just going to hand it off to Carl and let him run with it. So I'm going to cover, it's going to be pretty short. It's going to be around about 10 minutes long. So make sure you get your questions in. So when we finish this full presentation. Um, so what I want to go through is mainly the principles of recording, mixing and mastering. So we're not going to go through extreme detail, um, that kind of stuff, because that'll take too long. I just want to keep it to the basic principles and try to keep maybe five minutes to each, five minutes to maybe um, recording, mixing and five minutes to mastering. So let's bring up my presentation here. So just drag this one over. Pop this one up. Off we go. So the main thing that I want to cover essentially is what is what kind of mindset you need for each and kind of the difference between a recording engineer, a mix engineer, and a mastering engineer. So with the three, it should be seen like filmmaking where you have a storyboard and pre-production for the entire production that you're trying to do. Let's say it's just a song you're trying to do. You should have an idea of what that song will look like at the end. So what will it sound like? What will it look like? What kind of instruments will be on it? What kind of mix? Um, that's kind of important because if you come at it in a roundabout way, you'll end up in this kind of weird kind of uptown funk. So that took seven months to record and then more time to uh, edit and mix and, and send out because they kept on reinventing the song as they were going. So having an idea of, of the project before you get going in pre-production, just like a movie, um, will help the recording, mixing and mastering much faster. So we'll start with the recording and we'll go through this really quick. So what recording essentially is, is we're, tr- we're, we're not really creative in recording. So that's usually the main thing. We're, we're, 
We want to generate an audio signal. We also want to adjust the amplitude of that audio signal. So that's really basic as, as far as what we think of uh, an audio signal coming in and we want to record it. And then we actually want to record that audio signal to a medium. So we'll quickly go through what these really mean. So generating an audio signal, the first one and probably the most common one would be a microphone. Now, I, I know that we've got had second hours on microphones in the past, so I won't go into it. But the thing about microphone, especially if you're a recording engineer, is not necessarily the right microphone for the job. That's important, like the right tool for the job. It's actually the placement of the microphone, where the microphone is in the space and where the instrument is in relation to the microphone in the space. That's actually way more important in recording than kind of which microphone. So you can actually do quite a lot with microphones, you know, under $500 um, if you know where to put them, how to use them. Um, so don't think you have to buy the most expensive microphone microphones to get the best recordings, it's actually got way more to do with placement. Another way we can actually generate an audio signal is with pickups. So these are essentially permanent magnets inside electric guitars, electric bass here. Um, and essentially they interact with the strings um, via magnetism and they, the magnets inside can actually sense if the string is vibrating and that generates a signal which goes down the lead and that's an instrument signal that goes into maybe a, a DI box or straight into an interface. And the other type would make it would be electronic instruments. So these essentially have a DC current. Um, this DC current is is manipulated to form an audio signal, and that audio signal would come out at line level or maybe instrument level, depending on the type of electric instrument. So the next part would be adjusting the amplitude. So basically, with microphones, we're going to use a preamp. Now, preamps can seem quite simple; they can get quite expensive, but essentially, all this is doing is making your microphone level up to line level. That's pretty much it, and you want to make sure you're not clipping. So it's a pretty straightforward process. There's no creativity with, with preamps. So as much as people think they want to be creative with preamps, you shouldn't. We'll get to that in a second. Um, another way is a DI box. So if you bring an instrument in, this DI box and many other DI boxes that have transformers, um, some are passive or active, they essentially bring up that instrument level up to line level. So therefore, we have a line level, which we can then send off to be recorded. And another one that people kind of forget a little bit, but if you're into electronic instruments, especially analog synthesizers, this is a line mixer. So essentially what it is, it's just a lot of attenuators for line level. So sometimes um, you have some uh, 1970s, early 1980s synthesizers that are very hot. They're a bit too high. And so you have to attenuate them down. So this actually doesn't have any preamps in it. It's essentially a mixer and a router in, in one. Um, there's a few brands of it. This is just a Behringer one you'll find this in many studios that have electronic instruments and it's, it's very clean there's no amplifiers in it whatsoever it's just simply attenuators and it can turn a mono signal to stereo signal and vice versa it turns a stereo signal to mono signal if you want as well now the last part is transferring to the recording medium so I will cover just the electronic transfer. I won't go back into the acoustic days when we had like wax cylinders. So we still have lathes. This is actually at Abbey Road. This is a lathe that's there right now. Um, so you can record directly to a lathe. Um, and this would go down onto shellac or vinyl. Um, then you'd have analog tape, which started pretty much from the 1950s onwards after the Second World War. Um, so this is analog 24 track tape machine. This is pretty much a holy grail for analog recording. And then after analog recording, we went to digital. This is a Sony 48-track PCM recorder. Um, this was found in the 90s through many studios, and this was used right up until pretty much still used right to the present day with some studios. But today, the most common thing you're going to find is an audio interface and a DAW, digital audio workstation. So a lot of the I.O. hardware is what actually does the heavy lifting, um, and the software just simply manages the hardware in a way and manages the tracks, if we're thinking about just the recording process. So moving on from recording... Let's move into mixing. So there's two parts to mixing. So there's the mixer we'll talk about now, and then there's summing mix, which we'll talk about in a second. So mixing, 
keep it pretty simple. You're going to adjust relative amplitude. So what does relative mean? We're going to hear this a bit. You actually hear this in video world as well. So there we have relative and, uh, and absolute. So relative means we're actually only, we're adjusting the amplitude or the loudness of a particular track compared to another track. It's not to what we hear in the room. So what we hear in the room doesn't matter. We can turn the speakers up or down. That's not what we're interested in. It's compared to one or, one or another track. And then the other thing we're going to do is adjust the absolute frequency. So this isn't relative. So we're actually going to cut off frequencies. So this is like a high-pass filter, a low-pass filter. They actually cut off frequencies, and you can't get them back later on. So unlike relative amplitude, where you can lift, you can boost the signal later on if you want to, once you cut the frequencies out and you print it, that's it. They're gone. And then the other one is is generate spatial image. So I'm going to cover mainly a stereo one. I will touch on some 5.1, but we'll, we'll keep it to stereo basically. Um, so this is kind of, is that instrument in the left, the right, slight left, slight right? You can decide that as well during this stage in the mix. So pretty much when you're adjusting relative audio, we're going to use faders. And this is going to be pre-planned. So you're actually going to plan out what's in the groups. We'll get to the groups in a second, but it's not essentially you're not mixing the entire song just yet. You're actually relative to... So a drum kit is a good example. So the hi-hat in a drum kit would probably be the quietest part of the drum kit, if you're not including, like, room mics. Um, but the loudest part would probably be the snare and the bass drum. So you put your hi-hat at zero dB gain, and then you slowly bring up your snare until the snare and the hi-hat have a good volume relationship. And that's a relative part of the of this. And we'd use compressors and stuff to maybe um, bring up the hi-hat a bit, bit louder and bring down the peaks on, on uh, the snare, for instance, if we're going to use drums in an example. So a limiting amplifier can also be used usually for overheads or room mics for drums, um, but they also can be used on string instruments, vocals, that kind of stuff as well. Another part of amplitude, relative amplitude mixing, so the loudness, is actually EQ. EQ's actually got nothing to do with frequency. We don't, we don't care about frequency with EQ. We're actually making something louder or quieter, and we're just doing it in a band spectrum. So just part of that spectrum we're making louder or quieter as part of the frequency spectrum. So it's got nothing to do with actually changing the frequencies, like what we do with a filter. We're actually just, this is still volume. It's just volume of a particular part of the signal rather than the whole signal. When we actually get to absolute frequency adjustments, then we're talking about cutting out frequencies altogether. So it's actually the black knobs on the left and right here and the shelving filters on the far left and the far right here as well in the red. They're the ones that actually do the shaping. Um, there are some other brands that do it. So Dangerous also has one. This isn't, it looks like an EQ, but it's actually completely filters. So it's a shelving filter and high cut and low cut filter. So although the one from Chandler does have EQs in the middle there. So the way it kind of works, this is a filter. It literally cuts it off and that's it. It's gone. It never comes back. You can't bring it back. There's nothing you can do. So this is a high-pass filter and a low-pass filter together. You may not use them together, of course. You may use them just one or the other, but I'm just showing you here for convenience and a bit of speed. And then this is a shelving filter. So it looks similar, but instead of cutting it off completely, we're just lowering it after that point. So here I've lowered it by 12 dB, but it has a similar effect. But shelving filters can be used creatively, and this is where mixing is, is where you do want to get creative because in rock and roll, we actually put shelving filters and we actually rank we actually put them up in a very high gain by putting them up in a high gain you actually get this boost and this is actually found in poltec eq as well so you actually get these bumps and this is kind of good if you're eqing a guitar now i've shown high and low here but the low one here you may use your guitar guitar has a lowest note and it can't make any notes lower than the lowest note so you can actually set a shelving filter to that lowest note and then boost it so it'll actually boost the the bass of the guitar but then it won't boost the high end of the guitar so if you want a bit more of a rocky death metal kind of sound you can actually do this and this is a very quick way just to get a and you actually can tune the frequency so you can tune how bassy it is so we'll move on quickly so 
The other part is spatial audio. So you've got your pan left and pan right. I won't get into that too much. But I will get into something that is found on many consoles that's pretty much been made since about the mid-90s, about the year 2000. And it's down the bottom here. We'll take a quick look at it. So what it is, it's a pan section, but it's a pan section for 5.1. So you'll notice here you have left, right down at the bottom. So that chooses the left, right. But above that, you have front or rear. So is the signal being sent to the front, left, right, or the rear, left, right? So that'd be the surround left and surround right. And then on the left-hand side here, we have a, a left, right focus or a center focus. So that tells you, is this going into left, right balanced? and therefore it have a phantom center, or if you go all the way to LCR, it's going to be 100% in the center speaker. So this is actually how we have an LFE as well, so a low frequency effect. So this is actually how we can actually pan in an analog console for 5.1, and this is how it was done pretty much up until about 2010. Now, the other kind of spatial images that we see today is pretty much done on a computer with hardware controls. So computers are pretty much how we do it. We haven't seen pretty much too much hardware mixing with 5.1 these days since probably 10, 15 years ago. Now, the other thing about spatial imaging is it's really important to know what's going to be going into that spatial imaging, and that's a summing mix. And this is actually the second part of mixing, and this is the part you need to actually pre-plan before you do any recording or anything like that at all. You need to understand what groups you're going to have, so what instrument groups. It's a little bit easier with orchestras because they're already set up into groups, but if you're doing um, rock music, pop music, you kind of need to know which instruments are going to go together when we actually do the mix. So formulate your stem groups. The other one is going to be adjust the relative amplitude. So this was the same as the other one, but now we're doing it with stems rather than individual tracks. So if you think about this, individual tracks, we are adjusting the volume of each mic that was on the drums. So we may have eight mics on the drums and we're adjusting the volume of those different eight different mics just for the drums. Here, we are now adjusting the drums to the guitar. So all the drum tracks are now being adjusted up or down compared to the guitar. We don't have to move eight faders, we can just move one. And then the other one is actually generate those group stems. And there's a few ways of doing that, uh, especially in modern times with computers and especially with um, if you're mixing in the box or you, you're doing a hybrid mix. So formulating stem groups is pretty straightforward. So this is kind of the pre-planning and it's kind of like film production where you want to do storyboarding. So you want to know what's going to go where. And so you'll know this when you're recording because you know how many mics you're doing. So you kind of have an idea of your groups already. And... When you get into a computer, you could have limitless, but you generally don't want to have limitless. You actually do want to keep it into some realm because you don't want to have 52 stems. That's, that's really not very helpful. So you want to get it down to maybe eight stems, 16 stems. Um, and stems are stereo, by the way. If you're doing a stereo mix, stems can also be 5.1 as well. So when you fix that out, then you actually go down to actually put them into stems. So here we have all those tracks, but now we just have them on eight faders. So now we can, just using one fader, we can bring the percussion up and the woodwind up, and we can bring the horn down, and it's much easier, and this can all be automated. This can be automated in a computer, so we don't actually have to do automation in the desk. You can automate this to the computer if you're, if you're mixing in the box. I'm just showing a console here for, for an example, but this can be all done in the box with Pro Tools or Logic. But once you get them into groups, then it's much easier to, this is actually where the mix actually happens. Once the mix actually is done here, that's usually what we call the, the, the master, well, sorry, the the actual the fixed mix so we generally don't change a mix after this if we do change a mix then you get into the circular logic problem where you'll actually keep on adjusting the mix and you'll never finish editing the song now we're going to adjust the relative amplitude which is that's what i meant we're actually going to adjust the percussion relative to the cello relative to the brass relative to the decatry so and this is where we do that we don't do this in the tracks we do it here we adjust all the 
all the ones that would exist within here. So we adjust all the percussion, so they sit mixed together, and then but they can be automated at the same time as well. So we can do some automation in this, especially in the computer. And the way you the way you can actually send these stems out, you can send them out to outboard equipment. I'm just showing here a 76, a limiting amplifier, and a Poltec EQ. Um, but there's many other outboard equipment, and you could actually send them into into the computer to be um, effects like have compressor uh, EQ on these on a full stem, so a full stereo stem would be EQ. Uh, the Fusion from SSL is very popular for this at the moment. We'll get to that in a second. And then once you've actually finished that, then you have to generate the actual group stems. So what does that really mean? So we've actually done the mix and we've heard it through the monitors, but we haven't actually recorded it yet. So you have to record it back out again. So you may have come from a 24 track or a 48 track, and now we're going to record down to 16 tracks or however many tracks you want to do in your stems. So 16 would be eight stereo groups, which, which I showed earlier in the example. But of course, in the modern times, we're going to use a computer. But the thing about a computer is if the tracks are already on the computer and you're going to mix them down until, let's say, you you've got 60 tracks and you want to mix them down into eight stereo tracks why does it have to leave the computer can't you just do it all on the computer this was kind of the this was kind of the idea back in the, the mid noughties around 2005 and a lot of recordings from then have actually been remastered and the way they do it is actually send them out and put them through this this is actually a, a mixer this is a full console just in a rack form it's completely computer controlled but it's fully analog so you actually send the tracks out via your audio interface it goes through this analog summing mixer and the summing mixer will actually take 32 channels total and mix it down to two and then put it back into the computer as a stereo stem so you put all your drums through this and it'll mix all those drum tracks into a stereo drum track and then you do the same for all your other instruments and so with the computer because you don't have to go all at the same time it's called printing stems so you'll print stems through this what's called analog summing mixer it's very common these days and when things are remastered from the early 2000s this is how they're remastered so we'll move quickly on to mastering we're almost finished so with mastering it's a very different process than we're looking at with recording and mixing so we're adjusting the relative frequency so what's what are we relative to it's not relative to any other tracks it's actually relative to the meter it's going to so we're adjusting the frequency to fit on an lp vinyl record we're adjusting the frequency to fit on a cassette tape we're adjusting the frequency to fit on a cd an mp3 streaming there are streaming requirements of course that usually has to do with compression loudness and total volume so luffs the other thing we're looking at is going to be adjusting the absolute volume. And this is actually where we want to make sure the song doesn't get too loud and we want to make sure the, the luffs don't get... And this has actually got to do a lot more with, to do with vinyl, with tape and with streaming. So streaming has strict requirements on what, what requirements of mastering must be where it's delivered to them. So this is where you actually... And this is where the loudness wars was fought about 10, 15 years ago right here. And the last one is actually generating the release format. So this one is actually, there is a big step here, and a lot of music's actually gone back to this process for Atmos. So adjusting relative frequency, pretty straightforward. This is EQ. So we're EQing to fit, this is essentially we are trying to fit an 800-pound gorilla into skinny jeans. And so you're trying to fit the entire song onto a, onto a vinyl record or onto a cassette tape, which can't have the full fidelity. But we want to get as much of that information in the song there. So this is where you actually EQ as much of the song you can to fit it into. And you'll do that through compressors. The, the Fusion here, which is, has compressor, it has um, EQ, and this is a mastering, it's a stereo mastering um, effects unit essentially used for a lot of a lot of songs now that are done in the analog sphere anyway 
adjusting the absolute amplitude. Yeah, this is to make sure this is actually what we do in mic check here in office hours. So we want to make sure we're not too loud. So Shadows Hills has a compressor. So this actually compress the song to make sure it fits onto the medium we want. MP3 is an important one. So MP3s can't have a, an enormously wide dynamic range. So you have to compress a little bit. Again, the Fusion will do similar things to the Shadow Hills. Um, the other one is you want to keep an eye on the, on your levels. So TC Electronic made an outboard one. But of course, most people today are going to go do this in the box. And so TC Electronics finalizer, which is all in the box. And this is actually really good. If you've actually already got stereo mix in the box, then you can actually just finish via stereo because you're no longer mixing in the box. So you can do it all through the finalizer app here. So essentially, the last part would be generating the release format. So with the release format, we've still got the stems. And this is actually where we're going to mix them down. I'm going to tell you we're talking about stereo here, so we'll quickly mix them down into stereo. So the way to do that is we're going to do it via a summing mixer. So this is the, the Chandler one, so this is essentially what was in Abbey Road back in the 70s, this is a recreation of it, and then again, the Sigma from SSL. So this is what you'll generally do to take your, your stereo stem, so this can take 16 stereo stems, so 32 tracks total, and mix it down to two, four stereo mixes. There is a way to do this with 5.1, but another big way of doing it would also be um, through the computer with other formats. Now, what are you going out to? Apparently, I've just found out that tapes are back. So, <laughs> cassette tapes. So, you'd want to mix down to a reel-to-reel -reel and then send it off to a duplication farm. A duplication farm would make your tapes to send out to hipsters all around the world. Another thing would be making CDs. CDs are very popular. Um, apparently, radio stations will only accept CDs. They don't like, they don't like downloads. They'll actually like to have a catalogue. So there are certain businesses that will only accept your music on CD. So CD manufacturing or CD presses are still popular all over the world, of course. And then, but the most common one you'd find now would be Atmos. So Atmos, this is the Dolby Atmos renderer. So this is essentially allows you to render out a master Atmos file. And this master Atmos file is actually, and as long as it meets the criteria, this is what you send off to Apple Music and Spotify and all the other people that would support um, spatial audio. So essentially, the thing that we've got to try to remember is that if you're a recording engineer, a mix engineer, and a mastering engineer, they are three separate jobs and they have three separate focuses. So with recording, we're really it's really a practical job. So where the microphone is in the room, where the instrument is in the room, and the room itself is really important. Um, how, the, how far the, the mic lead is for a guitar, that's important too because that, that'll attenuate the high frequencies. And it's also very measured. So this is also where we're very precise. We're not creative with, with working with recording. We can be creative in the fact that we can put more mics than we may need but we're essentially treating all those mics very particular. We are not being creative at this point. Creativity comes in with the mix. So the mixing is very focused. You need to be remember what you're mixing to. So your relative mix, if you're mixing drums, you're not mixing drums to the guitar straight away. You're going to mix the drums to the drums. Make sure the drums as a group of eight, 12 microphones is coherent and sounds correct it sounds balanced then once you have that balanced then you will put the drums into a group and you'll mix that group against other instrument groups also mixing is where you want to be creative this is the only area where you want to be creative but you want to be really creative here you can get into a bit of a cycle where you'll do mixing and then you'll go into something mix and you want to be creative and you go back to a track mix and you'll get creative so you can end up in a bit of a loop there if you keep on going with creativity um, but that's choice of the mixer and the producer mastering Hopefully mastering is done by a separate person, but it can be done by the same person who did the mix, but it should be, you should get another set of ears. It's responsive. So when the, what comes into mastering is a perfect mix. 
So it's a perfect mix. It sounded perfect in the, the control room in the studio when they mixed it. Mastering's job is to now squeeze that 800-pound gorilla onto vinyl, onto a tape, into an MP3. Their job is not to try and improve the mix. Their job is to take that mix as best they can and make it sound good on a car stereo. Also, they need to make sure their job is contained. So what that means is they don't want to make the, the, the audio more broad than what was originally in the mix. And this is a bit of a problem with Atmos, with objects. So with, with objects in Atmos, if the mixing does not come into the mastering stage, you can get into this loop where you get to the mastering, then you want to remix the objects that go into Atmos and you go back to mixing. And so this is a bit of an endless cycle you can get. And it does, it's been happening for many years, like it happened with the Let It Be album back in 1970. That took a year to mix because they kept on getting to mastering and then kept on remixing it because they wanted to make it sound better. Um, today, when we do remastering, remastering is really a group of mixing and mastering um, that's done together. And it really is, they're going back to the tracks almost or going back to the stems and doing a complete new mix and a complete new master and doing an A-B comparison to the original to make sure it's faithful. But it is really a whole new mix and master. So pretty much that's all we're going to cover. So we'll head off to questions. And we all got right. questions already stacking up, so let's go ahead and just jump straight into the questions. First one comes to us from Eric Price in Kansas City, uh, U.S. Uh, using a mix pre-6, is it possible to get two mix minuses out, one for the in-studio talent, where they hear only the remote guest and obviously the host's mix for the remote guest coming in through a PC via clean feed? Talent doesn't like hearing themselves. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, you might be able to do this with uh, an app on the uh, PC that you're using uh, to host the meeting. If you have Boom Recorder or something where you can route inputs and outputs. The Mix Pre itself only has one set of headphone outputs and headphone headphone mixing metrics, and you probably want to reserve that for the production mixer or yourself who's recording everything to make sure that you're getting all the channels and getting them all recorded and going down. Uh, onto the recorder if you're recording it live. Uh, I would say a better solution maybe be something like I'm using here, which is, of course, the Rodecaster Pro 2, because it has a uh, output. It has four headphone outputs, unlike the, uh, unlike the uh, Mix Pre, and you can do a custom mix on each of those outputs. It has an output mixing matrix where you can select any of the outputs and... Uh, mix any of the inputs in and create a custom mix or you can just hit this button here that says mix minus and automatically generate a mix minus or select main mix to route whatever output you have selected up here on the top routing mixer so it's pretty easy to adjust levels on any of the outputs from any of the inputs on the four separate headphone outputs that way you could feed Whatever uh, your uh, guests want to hear in their headphones, you could feed the host in, you could feed yourself in, you could feed them mix minus without the outgoing feeding back into their headphones and without their own microphone feeding into their headphones. So it has a lot more flexibility. It's not as quite as good a recorder. I don't like the recording. It does have recording built in on the Rodecaster Pro. It does not record broadcast wave files uh, technically correct with time code or anything like that. So if you need to do that, uh, you may have to use your Mix Pre as an outboard recorder and take the output of the, of the Roadcaster and feed that into the Mix Pre and just use that as your master recorder. That might be a better way to go. And it's about $400 cheaper than the Mix Pre 6. Next question. 
Next question comes to us from Paul uh, John Idelson, excuse me, Monterey, California. On the Flow 8 mixer, what's the preferred method to get mix minus and side tone audio, audio for a host and guest in a Zoom meeting? Good, Carl. So if you have a host and a guest in a Zoom meeting, um, the best way it would probably be uh, to use, so here I've got, I've got me on mic one, and the blue one here is Zoom coming back to me, and then the master mix going out. But the reason why you guys won't hear yourself is because in routing, I've got it set up that, uh, let's see, it's down the bottom here. So the very bottom here on the left, so I've got routed, so the USB will only go back to headphones. So I can only hear it in headphones. So that's my mix minus for me. If you have more than one person coming in, then you can use the monitor mixes. So to do that, you'll have the monitor mix one and monitor mix two. So you can actually have multiple USB streams coming in. So you can actually use five, six, seven, eight can actually also be USB from the computer. And we can have three different mixes going in. So we have the main mix, which actually is the stereo mix, which should actually be two separate mixes if you go left, right. And then we have monitor one, and monitor two. So that's four separate mixes we can use to do mix minuses. Now I haven't got monitor one, monitor two here, but I could I could put myself up here so this is me going back up. So now my mix could go off to wherever monitor one goes. And then monitor two, I could just have someone else. And so they're the three mixes I could have out. So you could have monitor and then in the main mix, I come back to the main mix and the main mix would be essentially me but i'm hearing youtube there so if, if i've got two remote guests i can have my two remote guests have different mixes and then me having this mix next question next one comes from paul wallace in austin texas i'm not a fan of the power supply in the flow mixer what do you recommend as a replacement good carl well, there is no power supply inside the Flow 8. It's just a wall wart. It's just a USB 2 amp. That's it. So any USB 2 amp. I've got um, an IKEA one that I like because I have some synths that run off USB. Um, so as long as you have any, so you can have an Anchor, a Belkin. As long as it pumps out 2 amps at 5 volts, that'll be perfectly fine. Um, you can even use a power bank. So if you don't want to use AC power, just use a power bank. As long as that power bank has 2 amps and that makes the Flow 8 battery powered. Uh, next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida is up next. When mastering audio, what's the best method to achieve your final specific overall loudness target, such as negative 14 luffs dash I? Go ahead, Jeff. And specifically, you know, I know that, um, you know, the the tried and true method, the typical method most folks will use is, is they're just sitting there kind of adjusting the compression, adjusting the limiter potentially until it looks like they're getting what they want and then they will render out the audio and then see what they end up with. Uh, other DAWs, uh, again, what, my, what I use for VoiceOver Reaper actually has the option to set what your final render target level is, whether RMS, LUFS, et cetera, and in, including a limiter, and it will, as it's rendering, dynamically do that. But so for DAWs that don't have that, is it just that tried and true method of, of kind of tweaking it and seeing what you end up with? Yeah, go ahead, uh, Carl. So the app I showed earlier, which was a finalizer, that's the big one. So the finalizer app, which will run inside a door, essentially just run as a plugin. Um, 
that essentially has a lot of controls and finalizers have been around for a long time since the 90s, uh, maybe the late 80s. Um, and now they've just moved into software because computers are powerful enough to run it. Um, but yeah, the finalizer app from TC Electronic is pretty much one of the gold standards when it comes to doing exactly what you're saying. But you are right. A lot of the features that are in the finalizer, you will find built into Logic and Pro Tools and Reaper and, and stuff like that because you can say um, on export or just normalize the volume and give it all the parameters and it will just go through and automatically do that for you. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida is back for uh, this question. For incorporating Dolby Atmos, is there a difference between the native integration in Logic Pro versus the add-on Dolby Atmos renderer in another digital audio workstation or video editor? Go ahead, Carl. So Dolby Atmos can only be done in the Dolby Atmos renderer. That's where the actual master file is created. What you can send to the Dolby Atmos renderer can be done in anything. So you're sending maybe 16 beds. So you can send 16 beds from any DAW. You can send it from hardware as well. So that can go, that can be fed into the Dolby renderer. The reason why is because the Dolby renderer does one thing that the beds can't do, and that's objects. So objects has to be done in the Dolby renderer because the objects is kind of the the special thing that Dolby Atmos has over any discrete surround sound, like, you know, 7.1 or 7.1.4 back in the day. Um, objects are treated differently and they have to be encoded into metadata because the objects are not actually encoded onto tracks. They actually stay as like a sidecar file until they get to your AV receiver or your Dolby Atmos device and the chipset in there actually takes that sidecar file of the of the objects and because depending on which receiver you have it will know where the speakers are in your room so it actually maps it to where the speakers are in your room and not to where the speakers were in the studio and this is where atmos is a massive departure from all other surround sounds it actually is the objects are tailored to your experience and not to the studio experience the beds are the beds the beds will always be the beds but the objects is where it changes and you can use a, um, the calibration mics can help set up this when you when you set it up or you can go in and actually set up where your speakers are in the room but Essentially, the renderer is what actually creates a Dolby Atmos file, and that's what does the objects, but many apps can actually send it the 16-channel beds if you need to. Go, Jeff. Now, and if I'm not mistaken, however, Logic is the only one that has that through a partnership with Dolby, has Atmos built into it so it is native in logic and and what i'm really wondering is is there a difference between the two if i'm using the native built or built in currently built in functions yeah, the, versus separately the separate the separate one's got a lot more tools and and generally most mastering logic has made it a lot easier to to, to get into doing surround and i applaud that and i think that it's great um but i don't know anybody that's mastering uh atmos outside of pro tools <laughs> like you know like pro tools is like 99 of the market and and you know, resolve is is coming up fast with more technical um, av availability. But uh, one of the reasons I got back into Logic, I had used it in the past, and I brought, got back into it is because of that ease of use. So I think that there are some advantages to jumping in to getting. I think the easiest place to get started with with sur surround is Logic. Um, but most of the mastering houses that I've worked with, the, uh, all of them are using pro tools. <laughs> so, so the, uh, and, um, and then resolve has got all the tools. Um, there's usually just little bits and pieces that these mixing company, you know, the mixing, uh, studios ha need. And, and again, we have to remember that when a mixing studio is doing this, there's a lot of control that they need that has been, been done in that, you know, in pro tools for a long time. And so it's, it's a, it's a, it's still going to take time. But I think that, um, 
I think that logic is going to get much better over time. <laughs> so I think that there's a lot more investment in that. Um, and that's why I'm paying attention to logic is because I think that, uh, uh, you know, Apple needs spatial to work well for their headset. <laughs> so so, so they're, they have a different, it's not just a business for them. There's a bigger business that, that logic is connected to than what Pro Tools is doing. And that's going to be hard to compete with. Um, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Up next, how would you mix four USB mics? Is there such a thing as a hardware USB audio mixer? Go ahead, Carl. So essentially, you do this on a Mac. So if you just have a Mac and you just have, uh, you can even just use a USB hub because USB mics are not that much data. So you plug all four USB mics into the hub, plug the hub into the Mac, then you go into audio MIDI setup and you set up those four mics as an aggregate device. It sees it as one device, but it will see it as four channels. And you put that into your DAW or into anything that will mix, actually. And then off you go. So they'll just see it as four channels. It'll see it as a, it'll essentially see it as a microphone, as, as one audio interface with four channels and each of those channels is a microphone, be it stereo or mono. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach back with, aside from additional mics or sources, is there anything unique about the actual recording process for Atmos? Any additional metadata and so forth? Go ahead, Carl. So no, so Atmos was at the very end of the mastering stage that I showed. So you can actually do the beds, of course. So when you think about stems, you want to think about stems for the beds and you do want to think about tracks for objects, but it's actually in the mastering stage and that's where you're actually mastering to the format, to, to CD, to tape, to Atmos. And this is why we see a lot of remastering and remastering has to sometimes go back to the tracks, create new stems, and those new stems then get put into the beds that go off to Atmos. So it is a it is a process. It's it's not just a one stop. Um, but essentially, as long as you record as many mics as you choose to, and those all those mics are simply tracked, then it's those all those. There's a lot of work to do if you want to take those tracks and turn them into stems. But that's actually what happens now. So when the Beatles got put into Atmos, they went back and actually used some AI to create tracks essentially from the four tracks they had for instruments. And then those new tracks were put into stems, those stems were put into beds, and then they created objects. And then we now have Beatles on Atmos. Next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway is up next. What is the best way to master the volume of a recording that was recorded with a lot of dynamic range? Good, Carl. So it depends what you're printing out to. So if it, so classical music has an enormous amount of dynamic range. They don't touch it. So as long as their peak doesn't go above whatever they don't want to go above for that particular format, be it streaming, be it a CD, then they're okay. So you'll actually find very high-end recordings of classical music. Um, jazz has extreme dynamic ranges. That's because that's what audiophiles want. They have speakers that are capable of doing this extreme dynamic range. If you're looking for radio playback, AM radio playback, then yeah, you're going to put it into through a compressor, um, through a limiter. And that's going to squeeze it from maybe 24 dB of dynamic range down to maybe six. And that was, that's what happens during the loudness wars. Next question. Next question comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Is there a reason to buy the different components in a recording chain from the same manufacturer? Or is it better to buy a variety of companies as each has their strengths and weaknesses? Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, there's no reason to buy from the same manufacturer. There's a couple of little 500, so 500 are the slot units. There's some that talk to each other. There's a little bit like that. But nearly all the rack mount external gear, everyone has, you know, they have tube techs, they have Neves, they have Poltex, they have, you know, whatever they want. Um, 
when it comes to uh, plugins, the same is true. You can mix your plugins. You can have your Wave plugins. You can have your Universal Audio plugins. So it's actually kind of a good idea to have a variety. Um, it just gives you more of a tool set to play with. So you don't have to stick with one brand. Next question. Douglas Carmichael has this one. Uh, Lisa L-ISA Studio has sources that you represent the objects you want to use in your immersive mix. Would you define a source in object-based mixing as the equivalent to a stem group? And he's got a link there. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, so a source can actually be anything. It could be a track. It can be a doubling of a track. So it can be a track that's actually have maybe has reverb on it. So that reverb version of the track could be an object where the track itself may not be. That may be in a bed. So pretty much a source is anything. It could be a track. It could be a stem. It could be a duplication of a track or a duplication of a stem that has an effect on it. So pretty much anything. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Best way to connect an iPhone or Android phone to a Flow 8 to add a guest to a podcast. Go ahead, Carl. So if you want audio to go back and forth from the iPhone, um, then the, probably the best way is with the, um, the, the Lightning to 3.5, to be honest, um, because that will actually send audio back and forth. You can use an audio interface, so just a small audio interface. Um, so essentially Helicon has one, um, a Ceremonics, so, and you can go in and out with that as well. So you'll need an audio interface, but then you'll need to make sure that whatever app or whatever you're using supports that interface. So Clubhouse doesn't support the interface, but Bluetooth will. So there are many ways, but sometimes that little 3.5 dongle will save, will save you a lot of the times, but also a small audio interface that plugs directly in via the Lightning can also help too. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next again. Do you uh, think that room calibration and or simulation tools like Sonarworks Sound ID can be a useful stopgap for making mixes translate in the absence of multiple monitor systems? And he's got a Sonarworks link, link there. Go ahead, Carl. It's a tool that can help you appreciate what it will sound like if someone has maybe a sound bar. I wouldn't say it's going to sound like discrete speakers. So if you don't have a 5.1 setup minimum, then you're not going to get too immersive. But if you have maybe a two-speaker system with a subwoofer and you have some software like that, it may give you an idea of what a sound bar that generates a similar kind of will sound like. So you kind of, you've got to remember your tool is going to sound like a product out in the real world based on its physics. So that's kind of a good example of how it may work. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Up next, how would you attach an Air X key made with by CME to a Flow 8 mixer? Go ahead, Carl. Uh, so you won't. So the Air X key is just a controller. So it sends out a MIDI signal to an instrument or to software. So it can do via USB. So it's simply a controller. It's simply a, a keyboard, um, keyboard pun intended, that'll just send out um, commands. It'll send out node information and, and pressure information to uh, instrument or to software. And then that instrument or software can be fed in via audio into the Flow 8. It's not actually, the, the X Air is not actually a um, musical instrument itself. It's just a controller. Next question. Ronnie Hofsoid in Tromsø, Norway. Mastering music versus podcast. What's the main difference and what mastering finalizer plugins would be the best for each situation? And what would you listen to, uh, listen on while mastering? Good, Carl. 
So if you're doing music, it's good to, to listen to speakers in the room. But if you're doing EQ adjustments, so if you're fixing something with EQ, then you want to use re- reference headphones. Because this is like reference headphones in a musical situation for, for mixing is like a microscope. It doesn't give you an idea of the large picture, but it, it can actually get rid of a hiss, get rid of a hum. Um, just, it just level out frequencies, and you can do that with reference headphones. Um, and they can set you back around $500 to $1,000. Um, if you're doing podcasts, then you can actually mix in headphones because that's how people are going to hear it. So you're actually mixing in the way it's going to be heard. As far as podcasts, you can actually mix entirely in the box. So in Harmonic, which is vocal stuff, um, ENG, so all news gathering, that can all be mixed inside the computer because we don't, we're not actually mixing Harmonic stuff. So musical stuff likes to be mixed in analog. It's got to do with phase. And then with talking stuff, broadcast, all that stuff, it can be mixed digitally perfectly fine because there's no Harmonic information between two people talking. Um, with finalizer plugins, Generally, you only want a very soft compression, but you want mainly normalization. So here on office hours, if we didn't do a mic check and we were doing this as a record, you'd want to normalize all our voices and you may want to normalize um, any boominess. So if we have some boominess in some of our mics, you may want to normalize that out as well. So have essentially a high pass filter. Bill? Back in the day, we used to do uh, little oratone sound cubes on the mixing desk in a studio so you get an idea of what an AM radio would sound like in a car. And I was wondering from Carl's perspective, are people doing the same thing with maybe getting inexpensive earbuds and AirPods and other things to get a sense of what the actual people listening to this will end up experiencing? Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, they do. So there's actually laptop speakers that are set into acrylic, and you'll see these two little acrylic boxes in a, in a on top of a console in a mixing studio, and they they look kind of just this clear plastic. And inside of them is actually laptop speakers they've taken out of like a MacBook Pro, and just installed them into these. Um, little acrylic houses because they need the, the rear baffle to actually work properly and that actually tells them what a laptop will sound like um, another way you actually do have essentially back in the day when we had mono televisions so television which were oval shaped speakers so an oval shaped speaker is kind of a compromise it gives you a little bit of bass extension but also has a bit of a tweeter because sometimes I had a tweeter in the centre of that bass so it's actually a, a two it was actually a two driver speaker um, so we did have speakers like that back in the day but essentially yes you do see it so if you actually look at more modern um, recording studios they'll have these little acrylic cubes up we're next to the speakers and inside there are actually laptop speakers and that's actually to see what's actually been cut out what's being lost in laptop speakers so they can hear that next question next question comes to us from paul wallace in austin texas faders what are the different kinds and what kinds of faders do you like good girl so faders shouldn't have any character at all so the thing the character comes from the actual mix so when you when you're taking multiple channels and your faders are just an attenuator um if a fader is actually having any character you want to replace it that means it got dust in there or it's um oxidizing so the contact's oxidizing so you can have deoxidizer spray but if it's getting you actually just want to replace it with a brand new one so you'll actually notice that a lot of faders um even for consoles that are out of production the only thing they still make are faders um because you just replace them for analog faders uh, for digital it doesn't matter because they're just simply a controller it's just it's just a number value so it's not actually doing any sound no sounds going through it um so the faders don't actually matter too much it's actually the mixing part so it's actually where they're summed together um and that's actually an op amp or maybe a um or a tube you know in a tube in a tube mixer next question peter moore in auckland new zealand has this one my behringer mixer has a power switch for phantom para power i don't need it at the moment but will it impact xlr inputs and he notes di boxes or mics in terms of recording that input if at all or and will it hurt my devices if i leave the fountain power switched on by accident good car 
Uh, so, phantom power. So, yes, you'll need it for condenser mics. You'll need it for some electric condenser mics that have a converter built in. Dynamic mics won't care about it because dynamic, dynamic mics have a humongous um, transformer and they actually have a humongous magnet. They, they, it's 48 volts, but it's very low ampage. Um, so, that actually, you won't even notice it. Um, the ribbon mics is where you want to be careful. So, if you have any ribbon mics, you want to make sure the phantom power is turned off. Uh, DI boxes actually, most of the DI boxes require phantom power. That's how they're actually powered to do the job. Um, so you do have some passive ones that just use the transformer base, but a lot of the eye boxes actually require phantom power. Um, that's how they actually get the power rather than you plugging them in. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can you use AI to mix music and voice? Go ahead, Jeff. There's a lot of this going on, and it's also a little bit of where we see the the blurring of terms AI versus machine learning, which some of them are. But for example, the the Dugan Auto Mix, which we've discussed, is now doable in software uh, as plugins, um, and that's you know and. That's prior to machine learning, but it's going to be sweetened and improved by that machine learning. Um, there's also uh, apps like Alex has discussed that will, uh, for example, remove vocals from a track and give you just the audio bed that you can use. Um, there's, you know, uh, noise suppression filters, you know, that you can add in that are now the next generation AI and doing a much better job than traditional sampling based noise suppression so there, there's a lot of that it's it's actually kind of one of the exciting things going on is to see where they're going and how each company is going to answer their competitors each round of upgrades good carl so the software I talked about earlier, which was uh, TC Electronics Finalizer, it actually has this already built in. It's actually been doing this for a few years. So you actually put in a song. You can put in any song you want. You put in that song, it'll actually listen to that whole song. So let's say it's uh, Led Zeppelin. You put in a Led Zeppelin song, it'll listen to the whole song. And then you can actually take a Wolf Mother song that hasn't been uh, mastered yet or even really mixed too much, and you put in that song and you say, I want this song to sound like this song, and it'll actually do it. It's, it's quite amazing. And it's actually got to do with more than just the EQs and stuff. It's got to do with trans, transients and compression. So it knows what a hi-hat is. It knows what a, it, this is, and it does it really good with rock music. A little bit trickier to do with classical music. Classical music is so broad spectrum. But if you take a look at the finalizers website and actually look at the examples they have, you can put in any contemporary song. It'll understand it, listen to it and understand it. And then you put in your song and you say, I want mine to sound the same. So it actually, it's essentially doing a, um, compression and EQ, but it's doing it as a multi-compression, multi-EQ. So this is actually very tedious to do uh, manually, but this software is doing it. It's using, I wouldn't call it AI, a lot of AI I would just call it algorithms because that's what it's really doing. And it's just applying the same transits and same compression and same frequency responses to your song that was in that song. And it, it, was, it won't sound like that song, it won't sound like a copy of it, but it'll have the same feel. Yeah, I think that a lot of times with, with all the things we see with AI, it's... Um, it, you know, I think that the issue is really where do you use it? So obviously, if you're doing the highest level stuff, you want a person going through there and working on it. Just like if you really want to go to a great restaurant, there's great restaurants out there that are, you know, um, but not everybody can go to great restaurants all the time. <laughs> so, so so the question is, you know, I think AI is doing a really good job of being the subway of, uh, of music, um, where it's it's good. <laughs> it's good enough, you know, for, for that kind of thing. I don't think that it solves the I don't think that it, is, it actually produces a great meal, but it produces a meal. And I think that that's the, for, there's a huge portion of the industry that just needs something to come out the other end that, you know, where a human could do it better, but if they're not trained, 
then they could do it worse. <laughs> so, so I think that that's where AI is kind of filling in that gap of someone who doesn't know how to do that. It's they make within a couple of years for both for many things. If someone doesn't know how to already do that, it's probably better to let the AI do it. Again, the, the thing that we keep on coming back to is what happens to the next generation of people who are really good if they didn't spend 10 years or 15 years being just okay. Uh, and I think that the, the, the challenge there around education is going to be intense. Go ahead, Jeff. And, and this is actually an area that I've been thinking of lately. For, for example, uh, editing a podcast where you've got the the host who we of course want the host audio to sound great. Then each episode, it's a different guest. Mm -hmm. And uh, do I spend time tweaking every aspect of the audio uniquely each time for each guest? Or do I spend my time making sure the host always sounds as good as I can make it? And then using some tools like that, that uh, do the auto everything on the guests, get them to where they're good. And probably it's a one-off episode with them, good enough for them. Yeah, I, I have to I have to admit that I, I, I've used the isotope auto tools that are there and I've not been impressed, to be honest. Like I'd rather just I tried them, I whacked on them, I you know, used I've and I've used them probably on a similar podcast to yours, used them on guests um uh, that um that are all different and just found that I'd rather go in. It takes me to do an overall mix of that person to fix the overall problems that are there. Um, it takes me 15 minutes to go there and, and play with the EQ, just listen to them talk, play with the EQ a little bit, play with the, now I, I usually don't, I usually don't add any compression till the end. So I just put it at the, at the final mix you know, to kind of pull them together. But the, um, but, but adding a little EQ, sometimes some plosive control, sometimes some sibilant. I, I find that I'm much more sensitive to sibilance than most people. I think I, I've decided that um, like I watch the Apple training, uh, the WWC videos that are, many of them have incredible amounts of siblings. <laughs> and I was like, I can't believe someone didn't filter that out. So um, someone who mixed it didn't think that that was important. And so, um, but, uh, uh, so I think that I go through and kind of do those passes as well. So, um, but I do it with every person because it doesn't take me very long. The, the hardest part is editing time gaps and fixes and stuff like that. The The easier part for me is to do a little EQ on each person based on their background. And D-verb is something that we use a lot for people because hard surfaces. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says, would a spatial panning plugin like Fiedler's Stage be equivalent to the 1990s era spatial console panel panning, or would it be closer to a spatial plugin like Deer VR? And he has links for that. Good, Carl. So in software, you can have anything. So you can actually, the software engineer can choose to have how you want to send something to the channel. Because remember, it's just a, it's just a single mono microphone or single mono, mono source that you're sending to either many speakers. You can send it to all speakers. So what I showed before, you can actually put everything at 12 o'clock, all the knobs at 12 o'clock. And that means that signal will equally go to every speaker, including the subwoofer. So that's kind of one thing you can do there, but you can do that in, so you can do that in software too. But essentially software is far more flexible. And then once you get to like the Atmos renderer, then you get to objects and, and very dynamic. So with those, it's dynamic if you want to sit there and fiddle it, but you can have actually automation in there. So that's how we used to do object-based stuff before we had Atmos. We actually had automation, um, pan stuff, pan one thing around a room. We just applied automation to those, those pan pots. Um, now we have Atmos with objects, which is pretty cool. Next question. 
Ronnie Hostoy in Tromsø, Norway, says miking a drum kit. Will, be, will there be different types of microphone choices for live stage versus studio recordings? And he notes the SM58, the E604, the E904, the Earthworks DM20, Neumann mics, and so forth. Would it be a good choice for what would be a good choice for both situations? And he's looking at buy once, cry once. Go ahead, Carl. So I would look at buying a, a drum mic set. So this is a set you can get them from Shaw. Shaw's a pretty good one. So there's a mixture of dynamics, and these are the close mics, so they'll sit on the tom, the snare, and then you have your overheads. There'll be at least two overheads. You may want to get an extra mic for the hi-hat. They don't usually have a hi-hat mic in this setup. Um, so, yeah, so it's going to have a bass drum um, mic, which is usually frequency. It's a little bit more um, frequency responsive in the bass, not so much in the treble. So these mic sets, as I said, Shaw makes them, Sennheiser makes them, Behringer makes them, um, T-Bone makes them. So they usually come with seven or eight mics. That's your best starting price, and they'll start at maybe $300 and go up to maybe you know $3,000, depending on what you want to get. But I, I would strongly say, wherever your budget is, just take a look at these drum set mics, because they're actually tuned for drums, and you do get your two condensers, but they're very flexible, because you can use them in many other applications, away from drums as well. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Uh, Carl, what's your dream mixing setup for a two-person or a four-person podcast? Go ahead, Carl. So that'd just be like logic. So <laughs> it sounds kind of silly, but I just well, do I guess, that all in the box. I, and I wonder whether he's mean, meaning a mix, mixer or a, for podcast a mixer, like so a hardware. Mixer. Oh, for mixer. I personally like the, tad, uh, the, the Tascam. I think the Tascam um, pod track or pod, oh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, the Tascam one is very user-friendly. It's really focused on podcasting you really can't record a band with it um but it is really flexible because you can actually have three people coming remotely via three different means so one person can come in via a usb one person can come in via 3.5 if they're coming in from a phone or something and it's bi-directional so they, they'll have it then and, and every microphone has a mix minus so the mix minus is already there i personally like the Tascam one as a turnkey solution um if you want to like go to a, a like a dream i just get a wing so it's four and a half thousand dollars, but a wing will be very, it's a way overkill. And just a heads up, the wing will have a rack version very soon. Go ahead, Jeff. And I'll just add that again, the vast majority of podcasts are, are you know, if they have something like a roadcaster, that's like a big upgrade for them. So I think, again, looking forward, it'll be something like a, a one box, like a roadcaster, and it will have all of that ai that we just talked about it'll do the auto leveling it'll start to tune and tweak the the actual audio of each mic as well as the overall mix so that it's out the other end you have either both live and a final almost recorded product yeah i i think that uh, i'm uh i've done a most of the podcasts that I've done on the road have all been sound devices equipment. It started with a 722, 744, 788, uh, now a Scorpio or Mix Pre. Um, and so most of the time when I've been on the road, I find that the preamps and control and routing, especially on, you know, have, have been really advantageous. Um, I, so I, those have been the ones that I've been the most happy with on the road. What we use right now for Michael Krasny's show is an X32 um, because we're bringing in things via potentially in person and, you know, remotely, so on and so forth. But you asked for the dream setup, the dream setup. I know this is not Carl's dream setup, but I'm going to insert my own dream setup, which is uh, a Calrec Artemis. Like if you're going to dream, dream big. Anyway, all right, next, next question. 
Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Uh, the Stella X2 mic touts the removal of harshness found at higher frequency in condenser mics. Is there a reason to keep these harsher sounds around when recording and deal with it in the mix in post? Good, Carl. So condenser mics, large diaphragm condenser mics had a bump around 4,000 to 6,000. And this has got to do with presence with singing, essentially. But that can be harsh with talking. So it increases sibilances, Alex was talking about before. So my guess is Estella may be a flattened um, design more for talking rather than for singing. So they've flattened that rather than having this artificial bump, which the U87 has. Um, and all the clones of U87 also have this bump as well. And the U89, which people kind of miss. So U87 is actually designed for singing. U89 is designed for voiceover work. And it actually has a bump a little bit lower to to suppress some of the sibilance and to suppress some of the um, uh, mouth noises. So this is kind of similar to sibilance as well, but mouth noises. Good, Bill. And you're hearing from Carl why we all own multiple microphones. You use the microphone that works for the kind of work that you're doing today, and that may not be the kind of work or the kind of voice that you're recording tomorrow. Mics have character, and matching the character to the task is sometimes part of the art of miking things. Go ahead, Jeff. And I wonder, Alex, if that's actually why you like that, uh, the Stellar uh, saying that you're particularly sensitive to those um, uh, sibilants and, and it if it's could doing be. that. I actually think that the, the the high end on the Stellar, for my voice at least, just get capturing the resonance sounded better than the than the uh, the 102 that I was using before. And that's a Neumann that's three or four times as expensive as the Stellar. And we did it head to head and we just plugged the two mics in and went back and forth. And the audience here chose the Stellar over the Neumann. I still use the Neumann when I do voiceovers for people. So, so, so I, you know, I don't use the Stellar for that, but I, but I, um, uh, I think in a, in a controlled environment, I still like the, the Neumann better, but, but I, um, but for the show, it's turned out great. And it allows me to just leave the mic where, where it is. Uh, next question. Nathan Cashin in Oregon City says, ASMR, massage and crackling videos are popular, but it's awkward seeing a microphone in the shot or road go mic strapped to their arms. What would be a better way to capture those satisfying sounds? I don't think it's the crackling, it's the cracking. They have So on Twitter and YouTube, they're, they're doing these ones where they're giving people like back adjustments and they're like... You know, and it's and they're uh, and and admittedly, the mics aren't as good as they uh, as they could be. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jeff. And, and there are some uh, I've seen maybe one or two that clearly someone helped them and have set up like some shotgun mics. You know, directional shotgun mics is is of course going to help. But I'll I'll just from my own personal preference, I, and I like some of them. It's weird which things we like about them, um, but. Uh, I hate when the mic is clearly like four feet away. So I actually like when I see a thumbnail of a video where the mic is in the shot, because I know, now I may not like that one, but I know at least it's going to have the audio that we're looking for versus the echo of the room and it's four feet away and, and they're whispering and they're four feet away. So you, you don't hear anything, but a shotgun mic, directional mics, lavalier mics we've talked about um, would solve those problems for those folks. Yeah, go ahead, Carl. So 
a general rule that I follow is if you're breaking the fourth wall, which means if you are acknowledging the camera, you want the mic in the shot. If you are not acknowledging the camera, in other words, if you're doing a drama, if you're doing a scripted show, then you don't want the mic in the shot or you want to hide the mic in a pot plant like they did back in the 30s. So that's kind of it. So if you're doing ASMR and you're acknowledging and you're speaking to the camera, you're looking at the camera, then have the mic as close as you can. That's probably the best way of doing it. You can have multiple mics as well. Um, But if you are not acknowledging the camera, then you do maybe want to covertly put mics. I wouldn't, so people want shotgun mics. Shotgun mics do not have proximity effect. So this whole thing of ASMR is they want the proximity effect. Um, it changes the frequency response. So you actually need a mic very close. So there is some ways you can actually get some high-quality omnis, small, very small omni mics. They may be only an inch long. Um, and these usually go on. So I know that Neumann make these, and these are actually the capsules that go on the end of these long cables. So you can actually spend a $1,000, $2,000 on these. You get these inch-long capsules that go on these long cables that go off, and you can hide them wherever you want. And they can be very close, but they won't be in shot if, if that's what you want to go for. Good, good, Bill. It's interesting to me that what triggers the meridian response in different people is very different. For me, it is not sounds, it is visual. If I look down and I see I'm going to walk across stones or something like that, I get an incredibly powerful meridian response. It just sends a thing up my back before I take the first step, and it has absolutely nothing to do with sound. So every human who's experiencing this is different. It's just really interesting. Yeah, I... I, uh... For some reason, I really want to see someone with like a 416 and a boom pole. And then the person's getting ready to do it. And they, as they get ready to do it, you see this little boom come in and it's just like right there. And then, I, I, I feel like I need to do that. I'm going to talk to my chiropractor about, about recording that. That would be great. I think the other thing is treating the room. So a lot of uh, the chiropractic rooms, uh, you know, are off, <laughs> relatively inexpensive offices. And so taking a room and creating a real, um, you know, the, the more the room is treated, the better it's going to sound and the more you can get, you know, the physics start to work in your favor. So um, a well, a, a very soft room, uh, I would, I would light the top, the whole, see now it's, I, I didn't even think about this, but now, <laughs> but you get a, you get a big dome light. Um, so it's nice and big and soft. The whole, the whole light is, you know, it would be great. It'd be so good. Um, uh, and I don't like ASMR. I just like the idea of ASMR. So I, I have to say, I'm, I'm so fascinated by what the average person likes or doesn't like, but I mean, just with the audio, you know, I, I listen to some and I will deem them unlistenable. It's either something right. like they're whispering, but they're like cracking something 10 dB hotter into the mic or they're, or it's just room echo. And I go to the comments looking for every comment and, to and be, what's like, oh, wrong with you? No, this no, is the know. best thing ever. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, slept yeah. right away. It, it's shocking to me sometimes. The funny thing is I cannot, like I can handle a very, very constant noise like a fan. Um, and that actually helps me go to sleep, especially if it's making the room colder. The any any kind of like and like anything changing, I can't sleep. So like ASMR doesn't seem like it'd be any fun for me at all. Like I just feel like there's too much change, there's too much variance there. Anyway, thanks, Carl. Hey, Carl, thank you for putting together a great presentation. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, thanks to the panel uh, for uh, for the great conversation, both in the first and second hour. And thank you uh, to the producers for all the great questions. And of course. Thanks to the amazing teams that make this all work, the management teams, the development teams, the the production teams. Uh, We just really appreciate all the work that is done every single day to make this possible. So thank you for your contribution. Uh, We traveled uh, 110,000 miles, 162,000 kilometers. Big day today. 
that covered a lot of a lot of ground. Um, and uh, that is 800 million bananas, bananas, bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. But if someone asks, like, if money's, money's no issue, the answer is Calrec. <laughs> I just want to do a Calrec. I want to do a podcast. I want to buy a podcast. Oh, a full, like, a original Neve. And, yeah, yeah. A Neve, yeah. Good. I just get a whole Neve. <laughs> That'd be great. If you rig oh. up your chiropractor, he'll be, he'll be the most popular one on YouTube. Because oh the ones that are popular, you know, maybe they have her. a little bit better audio. I'll talk to her. I'm going to go. Do you know who could do a really cool podcast? So Lenny Kravitz owns the Red 47 from Studio 2 on Abbey Road, the one that the Beatles recorded all their first six albums on. Mm -hmm. So Lenny Kravitz owns that mixer. You know, Village Studios, I should talk to them. Village Studios has an Eve down in LA. And I've done some, we did, we did, um, uh, we did John John Mayer down there. It was good. It's really good. Skywalker Sound has an Iris. Yeah. Skywalker Sound has an Eve as well. Yeah. Mm Mm-mm. 